So Cecil Chamber A is where we did a normal vacuum testing and uh, where we qualified all the Apollo suits uh, before they were certified for you know, missions. So um, the astronauts would go in there and you'll see some of this later during my talk and they would have to go through a whole protocol uh, simulating what they were gonna do on the lunar surface, but in a, in a very close uh, environment, thermal vacuum environment. So you see it in, you see the picture on there is probably a space shuttle radiator test that was going on back in the seventies. But uh, if that, if you look closely at that picture and you've seen anything to do with the James Webb Space Telescope, you, you will know that the James Webb Space Telescope was placed inside this, inside Cecil Chamber A as one of the last steps before certification and launch. Uh, in fact, um, it was a great show on PBS on Nova about, it's called The Ultimate Telescope, it's shown this week. And uh, in that show, they actually show uh, JWST inside the picture just like this, except inside the door you'll see JWST. So that's just an interesting footnote um, about, and it hadn't, hadn't been used like that in a long, long time. Uh, had to be modified to accept JWST. Uh, what else can I tell you? Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, this talk really is a motivational talk. It's not just uh, it's not just um, my experiences during Apollo, but it's just something I learned, which I use in motivational talks. I give a lot of these these days, and. Um, that involves, which I'll get to in a minute, that involves uh, something called the, what I call the four Ps, um, passion, priority, persistence, and placement or putting yourself out there. And uh, this is a, a roadmap that I found uh, really helpful. Um, and um, to achieve your goals, whatever they are. I don't care if you're in grade school or high school or university or professional. Uh, if, if, you, if you, you're not quite sure you're doing the right thing, you're not uh, positive, uh, this will actually help quite a bit if you follow this roadmap. So uh, I'll review it because since we got time to kill and I'm gonna show it anyway, I'll show you how this works uh, at the very end. And I'll give you an example of it. Uh, let's see. So, um, so here's how this works. Uh, the first thing you do is you sit down with a piece of paper and uh, you write down what you're passionate about. And anybody can do that. I don't care how old you are. Most people, uh, they can express their passions in one form or another. So this is an example of, uh, of a group that took this, this little 
this little uh, program test and how it, how it worked out. These were like four girls. And uh, so they listed what they were passionate about, right? And here you see, here, here you see this, this whole array of things. So they were passionate about acting. They loved cats, they loved food. Uh, one of them was uh, very interested in a doctor or a therapist. Another one wanted to be a billionaire, and then one wanted to be a president. So you see all that in the left. You see in the left under step one all these different passions. So I mean, whatever your passions are, whether it's artwork or uh, origami or climbing or whatever it is, you the first step in this process is you you basically list them. Just list them, and you know whatever comes to mind. You might have five. You might have ten. You might have less or more. Uh, can you can you all hear me? Can you hear me, Ken? Can you see this? Yeah, you're clear. Yes. Okay. So th then what you do under each one of these passions, you, you grade them on a number one to five. And uh, with, one being the, uh, with one being the lowest and five being the highest. So so, so for instance, and, and then you grade them according to these, these different, uh, th three different parameters. And it could be more, but the ones I've picked is how much time is needed uh, to actually express this passion, how much skill level and how much is it gonna cost you, right? So five is the most. So for instance, with, Pat, with acting, just to give you an example, um, if you're starting off, you're going to need a lot of time on a scale of one to five. You need a lot of time to learn how to become an actor. So that would be a five. And you're going to need a lot of skill to become an actor. And that's a five too. But it's not going to cost you too much, right? So that's a three in, in this particular case. So if you add these three numbers up, you get a 13. Let's take the other end of the scale. You know, if you wanted to be president, you're gonna need the most time to be president. So that's a five. The skill level is pretty high. So uh, you probably don't have that skill level. You probably know right off the bat that you don't have that kind of skill. So that might be a one or a two. In this case, it was a three. I don't know why it was a three. And it's gonna cost you a bunch of money to get to be a president. Uh, let's suppose you wanted to be a Formula One driver. That's a real passion you have. I wanna drive Formula One. It's gonna take a lot of time, so that's a four. It's gonna take an enormous amount of skill, that's a five. And it's gonna take you a lot, of, uh, a lot of money to get to that point of driving Formula One. So you get the idea, you, you, you use these, uh, th these parameters, time required, skill required, and cost required, and you grade each one on low to high, and you can come up with a number. So in the far right column, you see the numbers, right? 13, 9, 9, 13, 14, 10, 15, 13. So it turns out if you add all of these up, you can then reorder your passions in terms of grades. And it, you look at step two on the left side and you see the number one priority for these people, they all love cats. Wasn't that something? They all love cats. And cats did not, it was going to take a lot of time, it, you know, a medium amount of skill. And it wasn't going to cost much money. And these these uh, these girls were all uh, 
you know, they didn't have uh, they didn't have degrees. They weren't professionals. They were just uh, right out of high school. They were looking for something to do. So then you prioritize this, and you you see how it's prioritized. Cats is one. Food is two. Therapist is three. PhD get a PhD or a doctor. Uh, MD is four. So this step that you go through orders your passion. So it tells you if you're going to pick something to do, at least have a way of prioritizing it. So, so that was the second step. Then the third step was once you selected a passion based on this method, you have to embrace failure. That's the most important thing. And that's, that, that's covered by the third P, which is persevere. Perseverance means uh, it doesn't matter how many people tell you you can't do this. You just have to keep slugging away. And you, you, you just don't accept failure. You embrace it. And, you know, by way of example, Tom Clancy had 158 rejections on the hunt for Red October before he got out there, right? So that's the third step. So you have this roadmap, right? And the last step is uh, put yourself out there a placement. So what that means is you have to be there when the right time comes along. The right time might not come along for, but, but if you're not there when that time comes along, uh, it's not going to happen. A lot of people that that when that happens, it ends up they call it bad luck. And if you happen to be there when the right time comes along, some people call it good luck, but it's none of that really. What it is is that you made a point of putting yourself as much as you can in a position so when the time was right, this this worked out. So I wanted to show you that, and I wanted to show you an example of how the how I ran across these girls at a, at a show. So uh, this will be fun for you guys while we're watching. Um, let me go to, okay, so here we go. get the idea what's going on here is that here are people like they end up going across the country in a van they they went to go they go to uh, shelters they pick up these cats they train them into this amazing show and if you look back at how they did it there was a method and it really it really was this kind of thing you know it's uh you don't think of uh, of condensing it down but there is a way to condense it down anybody can pick can pick their passions and, and actually determine what is the optimum way to do it. So, you know, how did I learn this? Because I look back on, uh, on everything that I've done 
And after a while, it became obvious that this is what happened. So uh, that's what it, that's the main point of this entire talk is that how you can alter, you can change your life, you can optimize your life, you can you can do things you never thought possible if you have a method of uh, of looking at it. So that's uh, that's what I wanted to go through. There might not it it was uh, may not be enough time to cover it to that length of detail during the actual talk, but it's uh, it was important. Uh, hi, Dr. Kasnet, I got an idea. Yeah. Uh, looks like Dr. Gelser is not signing back. I sent him a message that he's welcome to come back to moderate the panel, but there's a chance he might come, might not come back. And then Michelle is here. So would you like to join the panel discussion? Yeah, well, sure, sure. Okay, uh, with this, we still have four panelists. So now the question, who is going to moderate the panel since he's, he may or may not join us? Uh, with Michelle, Michelle, would you like to moderate it? Hi there. Uh, I am not really prepared to moderate a panel this oh, okay. morning. <laughs> if you, then how about Dr. Kasnet? Would you be able to moderate this panel? I don't know how much, how, first of all, how many people are, are online, Ken? Right online, now, right now it's fourteen. Um, the sign up people is thirty to forty, so they might join later. Yeah, uh, they might join to listen to your talk. Yeah, well, if you if you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. But you can join the panel, right? Yeah, no, I can join the panel. Uh, I'm not sure I want to moderate it, but I can join. Okay. Sure. Now, how about Aldo? Would you like to moderate it? Uh, no. Uh, no. Sorry, okay. Ken, I'm, I'm not prepared to do that. Okay. How about Alan? I don't have all that much time, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Well, in that so, case, if nobody, do, I, how do you think I, I moderate it? Yeah, go ahead, moderate, sure. Okay. Okay, so because of the this, I think actually initially actually Michelle also uh indicated the time was not enough if we start from 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 1015. So how do you think we start from now for the panel discussion to give you each of you more time? Is sure, okay might well, we might as well just get started. Okay, so let's start the panel session now. And uh, we will start with each of you to self-introduce uh, for uh, a few minutes. And uh, um, uh, then we'll start uh, uh, going around for the panel discussion. So go ahead. Uh, let's, uh, maybe we start with uh, Michelle. Okay. Just introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Michelle. Uh, <laughs> I'm Michelle Evans. Uh, I uh, am the founder and president of Mach25media.com. Uh, I wrote the book, The X-15 Rocket Plane, Flying the First Wings into Space, uh, published by the University of Nebraska Press as part of their Outward Odyssey, the People's History of Spaceflight series. Uh, and uh, 
And today we're here to talk about Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong, which is pretty great. Uh, Neil was a wonderful guy, and I look forward to, uh, to speaking more about him. Um, uh, as for myself, my background is that uh, I served for eight years in the Air Force working on uh, missile electronic systems and then uh, finished my degree, got out of the Air Force and worked in the aerospace industry for uh, quite a number of years before deciding it was time to sit down and write my book. And so I got out of that industry and um, specializing in uh, communications uh, about aerospace education, do a lot of um, events all over the world that we've done uh, with astronauts, people like that. I just, just returned from a trip to uh, uh, Nevada where I did five talks on the X-15 over just a three-day period, which was a pretty exciting time over the 4th of July weekend. And so I guess that sort of brings you up to date on who I am. So looking forward to being part of the panel here. Thank you so much, Michelle. We'll hear more from you about Neil Armstrong uh, and other exciting things. Okay, Aldo, uh, could you go ahead? Okay. Um, hey, hi, Michelle. Just wanted to say, uh, good to see you. Good to see you, Aldo. All right, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Aldo Spadoni. Uh, see, I'm an aerospace engineer, retired, uh, spent 35 years working uh, mostly at Northrop Grumman, but at uh, Hughes Space and Communications and TRW before that, uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of different disciplines, but mostly in advanced uh, conceptual design and uh, systems engineering. Uh, I'm a space artist as well. I'm a, uh, the president of a group called the International Association of Astronomical Artists, the IAAA, and they, uh, they uh, call me the cat herder in chief. So, uh, uh, Lawrence, I appreciated that video because that was some pretty impressive uh, cat herding we were watching there. <laughs> I wish I could do as well. Uh, and we we have a, a current publication. If you could see this, uh, let's see if we could. Astronomy Magazine, the current July issue is the uh, special editions uh, uh, space art special. So it features uh, 50 works from our, our space artists in our organization. Um, and it, four articles about the uh, of space art and space exploration. I, I wrote the, uh, uh, the lead article and there's the three additional articles. So it's uh, on your newsstand now uh, available. Um, I'm also a consultant to, to uh, Hollywood occasionally working uh, on various uh, films. I worked on Apollo 13 as a, as a consultant, uh, uh, the first two Iron Man films and a few others. Um, and uh, currently working on a, a movie uh, called uh, Persephone, which is a uh, independent film, a story of interstellar human adventure and survival, which will hopefully come out next year. Uh, and I guess that pretty much covers it. Okay, so we'll hear more from Aldo. Aldo actually has uh, designed uh, a lot of design and also uh, painting, very famous painting uh, inspired by uh, Apollo, Saturn V, uh, some model uh, rocket company that uses design uh, for, for the uh, packaging. Uh, so Alan, Mr. Simmons, would you say a few words about yourself? Oh yeah, okay. So I'm, 
I'm an artist um, and I've worked in, in the film industry and um, I never worked with, with Aldo, but he's the type of people that we would seek out. Um, I worked in animation, game design, and what, what would happen is uh, either I would doodle, doodle something and the producer would uh, have some ideas. So the producer would have some ideas and I'd doodle something based on that. And then we would uh, flush it out. And if it's anything um, that, that requires any scientific input or engineering input, then we would find somebody who was an expert in that. Um, and <clears throat> I always tried to uh, do my designs with that in mind, you know, that they are thought out. So, um, I worked in animation, like I said, and uh, film. Well, it's not really called film anymore. What do we call it? Video? It's because it's all digital. So I don't know that there's any film anymore, but um, I recently did some storyboards for a, a short film project. And um, a little fu a funny thing happened um, on three different occasions. Uh, three different people completely unknown to each other asked if I would help to design a remake on the British TV show Space 1999. Now, I have all these designs and all this, these illustrations and nothing came of it. And I found that very interesting that three different people would do this, that it's such an amazing coincidence that they would pick me out to, uh, to do a design for that particular remake for that show. Um, so I have all these designs and what my idea here was, um, I was told that the Eagle Craft in Space 1999 um, ran on fusion. So I went and looked that up and um, I discovered that um, we are way behind on uh, compacting fusion to the size for rocket propulsion that would be needed to be able to power the eagle. So I, I did some illustrations um, and I'm throwing it out there for the experts to say, okay, this will work, this will not work. What can we do with this? What we can, can we not do with this? And that kind of thing. So that, that's my, that would, would be my little presentation in this. So thank you. Wonderful. Actually, uh, uh, Alan has very, exciting design and uh, we all want, all want to go back to the moon uh, that will inspire new generation and everyone so we'll see uh, this uh, uh, brief presentation of, of the uh, his design shortly yeah uh, so dr kasnes could you say a few words about yourself uh yeah let me get my video going here uh let's see Uh, yeah, um, well, most relevant to this uh, topic, I, uh, I was a flight controller during Apollo, and uh, you'll hear that story later. Uh, I, I did want to talk about uh, some of the people I knew and some of the stuff I'm doing now, because I think it's, uh, it's also relevant. So um, I knew Neil Armstrong uh, reasonably well. Um, I got, to, I got to know him during the debriefing a little bit, but I got to know him more years, years later uh, during a, um, 
an event that happened and I see that there's a fellow who signed up by the name of Alan Boynes. He was my partner in crime where we actually attempted to uh, uh, save the space shuttle after uh, it had been retired. Sounds like a crazy thing, uh, but it's not, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but um, we actually came within a couple of months of, of pulling this off, privatizing and saving the space shuttle. Uh, so one of the reasons that happened was because uh, Neil Armstrong uh, became a, um, uh, an advocate. And so uh, if I can share the screen, I can show you some of the things that, uh, that are relevant to this. So um, I've written, I, I understand, I've written a book about this. I've written several books. So one is a novel about the first human voyage to Mars, which is climate-based. It's all about climate change and, and uh, how the atmosphere disappeared and things that are happening here have a, a, a you know, a, a basis for uh, uh, on Mars that they happened there first. It's actually a love story as well, and it's got a lot of uh, dynamics in it, crew dynamics, but it essentially it uses climate as, a, as the main uh, driver. And then I've written a, a children's spacesuit user's manual, uh, but the one that uh, people seem to be interested in, in terms of uh, chronicling now in term, as a film is this one, Save the Shuttle, because there's a lot of unbelievable things that happen here. So let me see if I can get it on. So. Um, this is part of the part of the book. Uh, it's called Save the Shuttle. And what you're looking at here is, is uh, a ceremony uh, that was conducted in 2010, uh, where I invited Neil and, uh, and Buzz and a couple of other guys, including Jack Schmidt, uh, to attend a uh, ceremony honoring uh, what we call Building 37, and you might be more familiar with it as uh, the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, and the rooms they were quarantined in uh, following their their return. So this is this is a really interesting picture because down in the lower one, you see August. I don't know if you can can you all see this? August 1969, the, the bottom plate here. Is everybody able to see that? Ken. Uh, yes, I can see it. You can see that. So, so these are these are these are all the people that were put into quarantine immediately uh, following splashdown of Apollo Eleven. You see everybody in here. There's, I know all these guys, but anyway, there's uh, there's Mike Collins over there, and there's Neil on the back, and uh, I guess that's Buzz over there. That was my roommate, John Hirosaki, who was in the uh, in the um, the quarantine. Uh, Airstream trailer and was brought back to Houston. So all these people were quarantined for two weeks uh, while it was determined that they didn't were, were not carrying any pathogens. Uh, so this is like uh, August 2010, which is uh, you know 41 years later, where they are all brought back to the same building in the same room. This is exactly the same room, only it's 41 years later. And, uh, and here you see, uh, that's me hosting the ceremony and there's uh, Neil over here and uh, Chuck uh, Berry, the, the flight famous space doctor and uh, there's Jack Schmidt, and there's Buzz. So uh, this, I got to know Neil pretty well uh, 
during this period because what we were attempting to do uh, was actually put together a business plan that would result in uh, people in, 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 in reactivating and repurposing the, the space shuttle as a private uh, venture. And uh, the, the reason we were able to do that, uh, I don't know how much time you got, but, but I guess you need to use up time, is that uh, we had a business, I'm looking for the business plan, um, just to give you some ideas of how, see, uh, oh, anyway, they went to, during the ceremony, there was a cake, as you see Neil and Buzz, and they were looking at plaques. This is actually the intercom that was used to, to call uh, the doctor's room in case anything happened. Right over there is where Neil slept. And these were plaques that were put in. So there's just a lot of stuff. So anyway, Neil was an advocate. And um, this whole thing started, believe it or not, with a PowerPoint pitch overlooking the Pacific Ocean in, in bathrobes, uh, just uh, just fooling around one day. My friend, uh, Alan Boynis was on it. And we wrote this PowerPoint pitch. And uh, this PowerPoint pitch, we called it the STS-136 project because the last shuttle was STS-135. So this was gonna be reestablishing it. And um, at, at the bottom line of all this was money uh, and income because the, the shuttle had been costing $5 billion a year and um, couldn't afford to, you know, the NASA couldn't afford to have a $5 billion a year program and, and then start a new program on top of it. So something had to go with the, with the budget constraints. And uh, the new program that was coming along, of course, was a space launch system. So, what we, what we tried to do was find out, is there a way to get income to actually get the shuttle, space shuttle to pay for itself? A lot of things that people don't know about, about the shuttle. I spent half my life with a space shuttle, so I kind of uh, had a lot of inside information. One of the things that uh, I found out early on is right before the Challenger flight, the shuttle program was almost paying for itself, and nobody realizes that. It was almost paying for itself, and it was doing so because it was carrying commercial payloads and satellites. And after Challenger, uh, President Reagan declared the space shuttle would not be used for commercial purposes anymore. And uh, that was uh, an enormous mistake. Uh, it not only ultimately resulted in, in the demise of the space shuttle program, but more importantly, uh, the commercial satellite launch industry uh, went to the European Space Agency, China and Russia. And uh, we're only now catching up on all the income, multi, multi billions, tens of billions of dollars a year that uh, we gave away when that declaration was made by Ronald Reagan that Shell couldn't carry commercial payloads. So one of the things that we did in, in, uh, in preventing this privatization plan was finding non-traditional revenue streams you know, paying space tourists, naming rights, sponsorship, space tourism, simulators, games, all this stuff, a lottery. Uh, and when you when we added all this up, uh, there's examples of this. We, you know, we found that, well, we knew the expenses because we were actually working with the United Space Alliance and, and they were dying to find some way to make the shuttle continue flying because they were about to lay off 30, 20, 30,000 people when that program came to an end and they hadn't been able to find it. 
So we, we actually showed, and this is just a snapshot of a detailed business plan. We actually showed by the third year of operation, we could, uh, we would be making money. And, and then here you see the range of 183 million up to 3.1 billion possibility. And that was only, only using 40% of the payload bay capacity of space shuttle. But in order to do that, we needed to have a space shuttle to prove this point. And um, excuse me, Lawrence, can I break yeah. in for a second? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I thought we were here to talk about Neil and Apollo 11 and not the space shuttle program at this point. Well, the point of it is we're, we're trying to kill some time. We're not trying to kill time. No, no, no. Very, we sorry, have sorry, very we little in, time. Sorry. Oh, is that right? yeah. we, we are in a panel session already. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, so yeah, so they, we mistake. are focusing on the Apollo okay. and the Vikings. So okay. Thank you, Michelle. I, I was about to say something. Oh, okay. Thought... All right. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me just finish this off. Neil played a gigantic role in almost making this happen. And uh, the, other, the other part of the discussion that we haven't had is about Viking. So I'd like to mention something about that because uh, uh, one of the guys... Uh, involved in the um, experiment, the three Viking experiments, uh, I became pretty close to uh, the labeled release experiment. And his, his life story is incredible because to, this, to the day he died, he believed he actually found uh, life on the Viking labeled release experiment. That's a whole other story uh, that, that needs to be told. So I'll, I'll just stop talking from that. But the Viking is something that we shouldn't ignore. That was Gil Levin. Yeah, thank you for the great introduction. Yeah. And uh, uh, the connection with Neo, Buzz, and uh, their effort for helping your, your effort with them to support the space shuttle program. Uh, actually, right now we have, uh, I know we are in a panel session, but we have our, we have an alumni, uh, he was a former engineer with Apollo, and the Vikings and uh, Mr. Gary Moore is actually our uh, council member, technical chair. So we'd like to, him to say like uh, two or three minutes about his, his uh, contribution to Apollo and Viking and uh, uh, recognize him for his contribution. So Gary, go ahead. Okay, well, thanks, Ken. And welcome all the panelists. I'm very impressed with the with that, with that prior comment, Terry, because uh, I indeed worked on the uh, Viking lander biology instrument. And, uh, did a, I was I'm a structures and dynamics engineer. And so, um, so I worked on the, on the entire one cubic foot box uh, that was the, la the, the laboratory. And uh, I also worked on the Viking biology uh, meteorological instrument, which was uh, something like a, a four by four by two inch box sample of the weather out there. Going back to the Apollo and the beginning of my career, uh, there's a few things I did before graduating from college, but uh, when I graduated from University of Washington in 1966, I hired on to the uh, uh, to the Apollo program, uh, North American and Downey, 
And as I was walking up the stairs to the first day of the work, of work there, my boss informed me that uh, in June 1966, they had completed the project. And, uh, and so uh, they were in the process of laying off engineers, and I could anticipate going to quite a few going away parties because the prior year they'd made four offers to engineers that were graduating and nobody took it. So this year they made seven offers and we all took it. And some several of those uh, stayed on through the space shuttle era and uh, and rose to fairly insignificant. Yeah, it's but, very, very inspiring. Uh, with Gary working on the Apollo and the Vikings is a great inspiration for the public and the next generation in STEM education, everything. And because Gary, yeah, uh, me, he can only ahead. stay for a few minutes. Yeah. May or may not, hopefully he can stay longer. I'll be fairly brief at the, uh, at, as I wrap this up. So, um, you know, the beginning of a, an engineer's career is not what you expect when you graduate. You're not the Tiger team. You walk in there and you learn a lot of company procedures, a lot of, you see a lot of the process, the work that people have done, spend a lot of time checking various other people's analysis. And uh, long about Thanksgiving that year, I started a, a new project that was, uh, a scientific airlock, we called it, to replace the side hatch window. So I was actually working on the command module inner structures. And um, so when the uh, when the pad explosion, pad fire happened in January, that was what I was working on. And of course, the, the hatch was the primary reason that the astronauts could not escape because the uh, pressure, it was pressure loaded and there was no way to open it until it burst. So anyway, the next year and a half after that was a very busy time. Uh, I, I completed work on the uh, airlock and then went on to work on the, on the hatches and the crew couch and uh, the recovery systems and, and a lot of other systems on the spacecraft. It's, uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to, make a list of the things that I remember touching in the course of the of that work. So that anyway was the was a start of a career that was uh, very fortunate. Uh, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And that happened a number of times through my career. So uh, along with the Viking. So anyway, that's the wrap up of the beginning of my career and, and what I did on the Space on the on the Apollo and the uh, and the Viking. Go ahead, Ken. Uh, Gary, we 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 highly recognize you for your contribution to Apollo and uh, Viking and uh, the overall American space pro program. We salute you. I wish you can stay a bit longer. Uh, so maybe after the panel, you can say a few more words. Oh, uh, I really appreciate. Very yeah, I'll, th inspiring. I'll throw out. I'll throw out one other thing. Uh, so after two years, I left and went to Lockheed, worked on some methods and some other things up there. And uh, then after the second uh, downturn of the L-1011, I, 
went to work at TRW, and there I actually worked in the in the group that uh, built and designed the lunar module descent engine, and I actually worked on that engine to repurpose it as a uh, Thor Delta straight eight um, second stage engine. So, um, so I've and I've done quite a variety of. Uh, uh, of commemorative meetings uh, on the various uh, Apollo programs. So a little bit of background on that stuff. Anyway, <laughs> this time it's for real. I'm off. I'm. <laughs> I'll be oh, silent. No, no, Gary, we, we wish you could be with us, but uh, it's just uh, maybe after the panel because we we have a very exciting thing from the panel. This you will you will enjoy too. Uh, so let's start with uh, uh, Michelle because we are celebrating Neo Day, and uh, I, I know you have you have wonderful book about the X fifteen, and uh, you have been involved with many uh, Apollo program and also the movie, uh, the first man. So uh, would you like to share us about what you know about Neil Armstrong? and uh, how uh, is this uh, great trade inspired the generation uh, under the space program? Sure. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, yeah, Neil was a great guy. I was very honored to be able to speak with him. I met him several times over the years. Uh, you know, not a good friend like Lawrence was obviously working on the program directly. Um, but uh, yeah, Neil was, was really, really excited about the X-15 program, which is why he agreed to sit down and, and talk with me. And um, <clears throat> we had a wonderful conversation about that. And I was glad to be able to turn that into uh, the chapter in my book about Neil. Uh, more importantly, it was interesting that I got to talk to Neil's boss, Paul Bickle, while he was there at NASA Edwards. And uh, Paul really gave me some great insight into Neil. And uh, it was one of the things that came out uh, a little bit in the movie First Man, but not very, very much, was the fact that when Neil was on the program with the X-15, that he really messed up a bunch of times. And it's one of these things that a lot of people aren't aware of. And it actually led to him leaving the program, which ended up getting him into the astronaut office. And as we say, the rest is history. But uh, you know, Neil uh, lost his daughter in January of 62, and it really affected his work there on the X-15. And so it was, it was probably a good thing that he left that environment and went on to, to Houston. Um, later on, when Neil and I talked, it was really interesting. I just want to share a, a little anecdote about when I first went to meet him for our interview was the fact that it was pouring down rain that day when I uh, showed up in Lebanon, Ohio. And when I got to Neil's office, it was interesting because we went into the office and it was raining just as much inside the office as it was outside the office. And, you know, I hadn't seen Neil in many years. And my first view of Neil when I walked in was him uh, carrying around a uh, waste paper basket trying to catch the rain coming down from his roof there. Uh, so 
and he set it down under a big drip. And then we said, uh, gee, maybe we should go somewhere else for our interview today. And so we ended up going across the street to a, an ice cream parlor and sat down there at the front window and, and talked for a long time about the X-15. And so it, it was just an, a really interesting thing to, to see that with Neil. And he was very down to earth on so many things. And I know some people uh, berated him for not being more vocal about his work on Apollo, really promoting Apollo and the space program in general. And the people that berate him like that, they just don't know who this guy was. Um, you know, Neil was always a very private man. He was uh, an excellent engineer, an excellent pilot, even though he did screw up a few times on the X-15. Um, but he was very focused on the program. And I think in many ways, he was the perfect person to be the first man to walk on the moon because he never tried to um, aggrandize himself because of what he accomplished. He always wanted to stay in the background. He always wanted to make sure that other people were getting credit for the whole program and not just him for being the first person off the lunar module that day. And it was, it was great to see that. And, it's, and he just never really understood this idea that, oh, people expect me to be out there being a cheerleader for this thing. That's not who Neil was. He just didn't do that sort of thing. He was very forthcoming with people that he knew that he was around. He was very reticent to be talking to strangers most of the time and stuff. And the way he was uh, venerated by some people and vilified by others was really terrible because, yeah, I just don't think they really understood who this guy was. And I hope that I was able to capture some of that uh, in my chapter on Neil in, in my book. And uh, with that, I'll, I'll let other people talk about him as well. You know, probably Lawrence has some great uh, uh, anecdotes about Neil since you knew him much, much better than I ever did. Thank you so much, Michelle. Uh, the story you mentioned was so fascinating. Uh, Dr. Kostnes, want to share a few words about uh, how, how you know about uh, Neil Armstrong or Buzz and how would that uh, overall inspire the young generation and uh, future American space program? Uh, yeah. Um... Well, uh, you know, uh, my job uh, early on was to, uh, which is what my talk is about, was uh, how to how to use the suit data to measure the metabolic rates and um, energy expenditure while they were on the on the lunar surface. So there were a lot of people involved in that program, as, as most of you know, about four hundred thousand. Uh, so it, it's just a matter of luck that you end up uh, meeting somebody like Neil Armstrong. Um, but, um, uh, I didn't really get to know him until later because a guy that I worked with again in the space shuttle program, uh, and you may know him, um, Michelle was, uh, Kenny Klankenek. Do you happen to know who Kenny is? 
so Kenny was one of the closest friends I had, best boss I ever had, and I learned so much from him. And him and his wife, Pat, essentially adopted me when I was working on the space shuttle in 1981, because I was a young kid that came to the Cape. And Kenny knew all the Rockwell guys uh, who are putting the shuttle together. Uh, Cy Rubenstein and, and et cetera, John Yardley. He was buddies with all those people. But his real buddy was uh, Neil Armstrong and his wife, Pat, was uh, best friends with Jan Armstrong. So uh, he told me stories of working on the X-15 uh, together with, uh, and, and, and they both went to Purdue as well, as, as you know, uh, Michelle. So I, I heard a lot of uh, second, hand talk about uh, Neil uh, at dinners I'd get invited to at the Cape when we were working on the space shuttle. Um, and it wasn't until years, then a few years after that, Kenny passed away sometime in the uh, in 90s, I guess it was. I, I can't remember the exact date. And I, I ran into Neil at uh, Kenny's uh, funeral memorial service. So we had a little chat uh, then and talked about, uh, I got a little closer to Neil because of uh, Kenny. And then quite unexpectedly, as I started uh, earlier on when I, I didn't realize that uh, we were just doing, I just went on one on my own about uh, the Save Your Shuttle program. Uh, Neil became instrumental because um, we, uh, you know, we were, we, we were putting together this program that said you could save the space shuttle when it was sitting in the OPF ready to be sent to museums. I mean, how crazy is that? What you're really going to try to do that? Um, so um, anyway, uh, you know, we'd had, uh, we we'd tried um, as, as much as we could to get uh, consensus behind uh, doing this project. Uh, and most people thought we were crazy, but uh, little by little, we had this business plan, and that ended up being the tipping the, the that plus Neil ended up tipping the uh, the scales in favor of this. And I, I could tell you a whole story about what was happening behind the scenes at Congress and and the House Space Subcommittee when this when this proposal came. But uh, one thing, yeah, one thing I'd like to show you, if I might have time, is a video. Uh, of Neil actually testifying in Congress. Um, it actually, Neil, 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 as Michelle said, Neil was very, very quiet. He was not. Uh, he was not prone to. Um, he he was not uh, prone to, to to big expressions of uh, of support. In fact, and he would not favor. Uh, any commercial entity over another. That's how balanced and even Neil was. So when he, you know, when he accepted an invitation to kind of help us, it was under the restriction that he couldn't say, these guys are doing this, you should do that. He would put it in terms like, there is a program out there that you should listen to because it makes sense. And that's what Neil was, was testifying to when he was in front of uh, this, co this Congressional House Space uh, Subcommittee. 
talking about the state of the um, state of the American space program following the retirement of the space shuttle. It was a lot of controversy, obviously. Uh, it, it's so funny. If if you if you give me a couple of minutes, I could find the video. Uh, but the real star of the video was Gene Cernan, who didn't pull any punches at all. And if anybody knows Gene, he was an opposite personality of uh, of, uh, of Neil. In fact, if you've seen the film Last Man on the Moon, you get a, a sense of that. But uh, Gene got up in front of Congress and he said, "What the hell are you guys doing? You want to you want a vehicle and reach the space station and, and do everything? It's sitting in the garage. How could you let it do that? You know." He's, extremely emotional. So the contrast between these two guys is, is night and day. Uh, but if you pan around and look at the faces of uh, congressmen watching this go on, I mean, they were agog. These, these guys were, they're, they're heroes, all of them. So um, yeah, that's, 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 that was my interaction. You know, then, and then uh, in the interim before that happened, there was the ceremony that I mentioned Honoring Neil, uh, honoring actually, it was honoring uh, the Lunar Receiving Lab uh, at the Johnson Space Center and and the uh, the quarantine efforts that went uh, went into that. So uh, Neil came right away when he found out we were honoring uh, Lunar Receiving Lab and all those people in that picture that he was quarantined with, and uh, he made a nice speech that day. So that's how I got to know Neil and. Uh, Michelle's right about all the things he said personality-wise. She said about personality-wise. Thank you, uh, Dr. Kostinus. Maybe uh, later, we have uh, sometime can, you can show your video, uh, but we'll move on to Aldo and Alan. Uh, I don't know if you have, you two personally uh, interaction with uh, Neil Armstrong. If yes, you, you, can, you are welcome to share or you can, can you share with you, with us about your creation? You know, how the Apollo or Viking program or Neil Armstrong, Buzz, Michael Collins inspire you for your art, art creation? Could you explain your inspiration and uh, 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 related to your creation and uh, how would that, would that inspire, help inspire uh, the next generation in the future? That, uh, uh, future space program. Go ahead, Aldo. Uh, okay. Hi, everybody again. Um, uh, I did not know Neil. Uh, unfortunately, I did not meet him or ever, uh, but I, had, I do did meet his sons uh, on several occasions and watch them uh, jam and do some great music, actually, at the, at the Space Fest event in, in Tucson. But uh, Going back to uh, Apollo, I'd like to comment on that and uh, the program. Uh, the 1960s, wow, uh, a magical time, uh, certainly for me as a boy growing up. Uh, I was 12 years old uh, uh, during the Apollo 11 landing, uh, but uh, I was hooked as a space cadet uh, since uh, John Glenn went up. So from four years, my earliest memories are of just being totally enamored and uh, overwhelmed by by the space program, and while I you know I was certainly a fan of the astronauts, I I, I was much more drawn to the vehicles. I mean, I just uh, I taught myself how to draw, and I was drawing rockets, and I love to design them as well. Even though I drew Mercury and Gemini and Apollo capsules, I was more I, I would take their 
uh, configurations and come up with my own, not just the uh, external shape, but the internals. Uh, so I guess my, my path as an engineer started, has been continuous basically since that time. Now, uh, during the, uh, uh, the, those heady days of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, you know, I, as many other young uh, space cadets, I would devour every book I could find in the school library, and I kept taking the same books out and out, out over and over again. And uh, I love the ones that featured a lot of artwork showing, you know, spacecraft configurations. So uh, the, uh, these programs taught me a great deal about the whole way things are designed, because I could distinctly remember in the mid-60s taking out books that showed uh, at the time what I, I guess what they called lunar direct, in other words, not uh, lunar orbit rendezvous, but a giant vehicle, I believe they called the launch vehicle the Nova, and it would basically just take a, a spacecraft in, in steps continuously all the way to the moon, the landing, and the the crew would return back to Earth in the same vehicle they landed in. Each each phase, of course, they would drop off a piece until a, a relatively small piece would return, and it made perfect sense. I mean, uh, since that you know everyone knew that rockets uh, were at the time were uh, staged. You know, we didn't have the cool Buck Rogers or Destination Moon single stage to orbit kind of vehicles. Those were beyond our technical capabilities. So people understood staging. So Nova made sense to me, even though it didn't occur to me at the time that the thing was absolutely enormous and we couldn't afford to build it. But, uh, and then uh, at the same time, books were coming out showing uh, uh, configurations that were much more like what eventually landed. You know, the, 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 the LEM, I guess they called it at the time, Lunar Excursion Module and, and the whole uh, rendezvous thing. So that's the first time it occurred to me, you know, I, I'd always loved aircraft and spacecraft, but I just assumed, well, the, the people designing them were thrown a challenge. I need a vehicle to do X, Y, Z, and they just designed it and built it. So uh, I, it, looking at these books taught me the idea that you have to um, uh, explore designs. I mean, it's a process and not everyone is going to agree on the best way to do it. And it was pretty clear it, it, uh, afterwards, when I thought about these things more uh, as, uh, you know, in, in, in college and even in high school, uh, that uh, they didn't know how to do it when the Apollo program started. I mean, now in retrospect, it's obvious they didn't know how to do it. But, you know, it, it just blew me away that, uh, what it must have been like for the engineers when Kennedy made the challenge. And I'm sure many of them were saying, what the heck are we going to do now? Because uh, it wasn't obvious. Um, how the program would proceed. So the fact that they were able to come up with all these options and go from the NOVA, uh, you know, Lunar Direct to the, the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous and that wonderful story about how that got started. Um, uh, and then finally getting grudging acceptance from the NASA hierarchy. And I don't blame them for being conservative. At the time, no one knew that space rendezvous was even possible. So they had to commit to the design of the Apollo system before they really got all the Gemini experience and all the you know the wonderful missions with the astronauts figuring out hey we can do this lunar with this rendezvous in Earth which means there's no reason we can't do it around the moon so so for me the uh, it was just so inspiring to see the whole systems engineering process unfold uh, 
while you know watching the the you know the wonderful missions of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. So, and and since I've always been a a, a futurist kind of a person, I haven't spent as much time in my artwork career rendering all those vehicles. Um, you know, I like to kind of design my own stuff and put it out there, which is one of the reasons I, I do Hollywood work. Um, but as we approach the uh, 50th anniversary of, of the Apollo program, I kind of was feeling nostalgic. And then I started to create much more artwork to try to capture uh, some of the moments of, uh, you know, the Apollo missions. Uh, so it, uh, you know, I kind of came full circle in that regard. So that's you know, kind of how Apollo influenced me uh, to become uh, an engineer. And now I'm much more involved in kind of STEM activities and trying to give back and try to get young people excited to follow a similar path. Yeah, you should see all those great uh, uh, masterpieces, you know, very spiritual and uh, very inspiring. Well, I, I can so, share my, my Saturn V staging picture if you want, Ken. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, give me a moment and I'll, I'll find it here. Uh, let's see, portfolio. Yeah, in, in the meanwhile, just try, you are encouraged to uh, look at Aldo's uh, uh, website and his uh, um, design and artwork. All right, here we go. Let me share screen for a moment. Wow. Right, can you guys see that? Okay. So yeah, this is an artwork I created a few years ago. Uh, I was trying to capture the, uh, the, the staging uh, event. And of course, uh, you know, uh, as you look into a, a, a vehicle, the magnificent Saturn V, you realize, wow, there's a, you know, there's a lot to it that you don't, you know, uh, immediately see unless you kind of read into it a little bit. For instance, a lot of people don't know that the the vehicle had these uh, retro rockets uh, uh, on the base of the uh, S1 stage, because uh, at the time they weren't quite, they really wanted to make sure the second stage and first stage cleanly separated. Um, uh, and uh, so you had the Ullage motors, and I finally figured out that they were Ullage and not Ullage. Uh, these motors up here and then the motors down there that would actually, the lower uh, retro would actually fire right through the nacelles. They had like frangible panels on there. So the first to second stage event was uh, exceptionally violent. It was all kinds of explosives and, you know, you know explosive bolts and around the staging adapters and all these retros and each vehicle was slightly different as they learned from each launch they wound up having much fewer of these devices by the time they got to apollo 17 because uh, the data showed they didn't really need them but in any case i was trying to capture in you know a few seconds of events and and i love uh, rendering uh, plume phenomenology and you know a lot of this is just eyeballed but you know just try to give a feel of the <laughs> energy of the staging as this thing was uh, moving along so I named this piece after the line from Apollo uh, 13 uh, uh, get ready for a little jolt fellas bam okay it's amazing yeah this is capture the uh, dynamic and uh, the moment yeah it's really oh, it's, I'm, it's I'm curious uh, 
Do you know what Mach number they were at when the first stage separated? Uh, I, I, I did at the time I was researching uh, that picture, but uh, offhand, uh, I don't recall. Okay. It, it's a graphic example, but I was just wondering about the, uh, the shock parabolas. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, those were strictly eyeball engineered. Obviously, again, it's a, a, my artistic interpretation. Uh, but, you know, you, you watch the, uh, the footage of, of the launches and, you know, a, a few of the launches, they captured that staging and you could see that ring of fire uh, shoot out for a moment. And matter of fact, my, my illustration is rather benign that that ring of fire was enormous for momentarily as, it, as, it, as the stages separated. Uh, but I don't think any of the videos at the time captured the, uh, you know, you couldn't see the separate plume, plumes from the Ullage motors or the, the, uh, the retros in the first stage. But as far as the shock shapes, uh, no, those are strictly eyeballed. If, that, 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 most of the artwork I create, I do under uh, contract for various aerospace companies or individuals. So in that case, if they want accuracy and, and they're paying me, I'll, I'll put the detail in. This was an image I just made for me, so I, I freewheeled. That's wonderful. Uh, sorry, Gary. Uh, so, Alan, uh, I mean, Space 99 was certainly a, a, a well-produced uh, TV series uh, inspired by uh, the, uh, the space program, like Apollo. Uh, I know your involvement with it and uh, you have some design. So could you share with us, you know, how, how were you uh, inspired by those and uh, how, and that you are new designs and yeah, uh, how would those uh, in, in think, you know, think the Apollo space program and the future space program? I was unable to find this, but there's a watercolor I did rendering when I was 16 of Apollo 11. And a friend of mine has the original. I, I'll look for the file. It's going to take, I can't even remember what I put it. In. I guess I didn't take it that seriously, but I think I captured the, uh, the lighting. Because uh, when they landed on the Sea of Tranquility, it was a very low sun angle. And I think I, as a 16-year-old, I, I got that uh, pretty closely. Now, I've always been, my big criticism for, for um, all the uh, renderings of, uh, you know, the Space 1999, or, which I love, but I still had certain criticisms, was uh, the getting the, the lighting in space right. Because I've been looking at this since I was a kid, 14, when I was 14 years old. And so I think that um, when I illustrate, I try to get, I try to get that right. Um, Regarding Space 1999, yeah, all of these things came about, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey came out um, around about the same time, I think a little later than, than the landing at, uh, I think maybe it was the same year, was it 68 or 69? So um, I, 2001 may have came, come out at 68 and the landing was 69, right? So, That's correct, yeah. 2001 was 68. Hey, Aldo, were you at the Space Tech Expo in Pasadena a few years ago? Uh, yeah. Uh, where I think I met you. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But my uh, artist <laughs> colleagues and myself usually put on a yeah. art exhibition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I came by and yeah, yeah. So because oh, okay. you look familiar. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and your style looks familiar. Anyway, so um, yeah, I've been doing this. I did a little presentation for this particular thing, this particular panel, but it's not really. Um, Apollo 11 oriented. Uh, That's so, fine. Go ahead to, to share your design. Okay, I'll share my screen. Okay, hold on. Let me make sure. It's inspiration for, for the lunar program, future yes. lunar program. Okay, so let me share my screen here. Oh, it'll be this. Okay, so can you see it? Okay, so, I can see it. All right, so great. Thank you. What this is is speculation, um, and that's what I do. I speculate, and then engineers and scientists that that won't work. This will work, you know, blah blah blah, and they 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 fix it. So um, what I did was I. This is. Uh, thermonuclear uh, spacecraft. And here I did a little, um, what I did was, did the interior and around here, this is very conventional thermonuclear reactor, which would probably not be used in space. I just did this as an experiment. It would probably look more like this. Oops, I'm sorry. This, this is, uh, you, some of you guys probably know this already. It's a, a, a a thermonuclear, it's a fusion rocket propulsion system. Um, it's already been designed, it's being worked on right now. So I thought I'd grab some images and put it in this spacecraft I was working on. This is a, sort of a glorified lunar module. I wasn't too happy with this rendering actually. In the beginning, I was kind of pleased with it. The geodesic dome um, is made from the uh, the regolith of the, the lunar surface. Um, as you know, better than I would know that the, um, the hydrolytic bonding of uh, when you, when you um, fuse uh, the lunar sand to make glass is much stronger than steel. And it won't break like, like glass on earth. So a lot of the I was thinking about aneutronic fusion, which is fusion that really uh, that does not release neutrons, but ch instead um, charge particles, so that the uh, the radiation will not be so um, so harmful. Um, so it's all speculation. It's all from an artist's point of view, right? But an artist who likes to have a certain logical background behind what they do. So this one is from the show Space 9099. This is the craft. How do you convert thermonuclear reaction into such a small space? So um, I looked at this schematic and these are the, they don't give you much detail. That's a deuterium chamber. This is with a plasma accelerator. And uh, this is as much detail as you're going to get with no real en engineering behind it, but it kind of looks cool. Um, and this is what I did. I did a little more research on what it might look like. 
thuminuclear reaction of the reactors on this. And then here are the ex, ex, brief explanations of certain components of this. Um, you know, magnetic fields, lasers to achieve the pressure and the temperatures necessary for what they call thermonuclear breaking. And uh, let's go on. This is to show you the size of the shuttle, uh, which it's pretty small. I mean, not the shuttle, I'm sorry, the Space 9099 Eagle. Interior does not match the exterior because um, it's um, a lot larger than the exterior and the windows are flat which I did not like. So what I did was this, I redesigned the interior just as an artist, something that looks cool and it, it, it fills the shape of the, 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 um, the eagle. And these are two uh, workers, these are two astronauts. And here we have another angle. Um, uh, obviously, he's weightless. Uh, you can see a, a space station in the background and the Earth. Uh, and here, here's the scale that I created. This is an illustration um, of the Eagle uh, under maintenance. Um, this is a guy. This fits, well, uh, the interior fits the exterior, in other words. So I know this show was inspired by the space program. Sorry about that. Um, that's, there are more, I'm gonna add in the chat some more um, links to some more artwork. Um, and my number one inspiration is NASA, is the space program. So I try to make it as realistic as possible. Um, so I use some, you know, uh, when 2001 came out, they used what they, what Kubrick and his, um, engineers, he, he hired some people from British Aerospace and American Aerospace to help out with that. They would put these detail, you know, model details from various kits and throw it on to give you that realistic look, which worked, but um, I like to go a few steps further, you know, and um, I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting to uh, use one's imagination to go into the realm of what is impossible, you know, and so that, that's just my two cents worth. I like to imagine things that are impossible. And I, that's just I my Alan. Thank you, thank you, Aldo. Beautiful. Thank that's you. wonderful. Thank you, too. Yeah, yeah. how do you say it? Uh, yeah, it's making impossible possible. That's uh, yeah. uh, one word for yeah. Apollo. Yeah, the engineers do the hard work and, and artists like me who just daydream. <laughs> Put me down yeah. for a few of those uh, fusion motors. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Okay. I'll send a link to one of my things in, in the chat. Yeah, please. Yeah, actually, Michelle is right. With the time, it's not really enough for all the uh, exciting uh, story and the panelists. But unfortunately, because Michelle has to leave, you know, uh, shortly. So uh, I, with the, we have roughly 12 minutes left. So. One thing, uh, could you, based on what your personal experience and the history, and uh, now we have the Artemis coming up, SLS is coming up, and the SpaceX testing, and uh, we have the capstone. So based on your, uh, each of your uh, individual and uh, unique experience with Apollo or Viking, can you 
give some kind of uh, advice and uh, how this future moon lunar vision can learn from Apollo and make it successful. Yeah, uh, Michelle, go ahead. Uh, well, my advice would be uh, get rid of SLS, but that's just, uh, um, I think that's been one of the biggest wastes we've had. I don't know, maybe in the long run it'll prove itself, but uh, <clears throat> it has done anything but so far. Any vehicle that's going to cost $4 billion a launch uh, doesn't make much sense. We could be doing a heck of a lot more. I think we're going to be uh, able to uh, inspire people and move forward with our space exploration a lot more through people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and what they're doing. They may be terrible as people, but they are doing a lot of really good stuff as far as engineering goes. And I cannot fault them for that. Uh, I mean, where would we be today without SpaceX, the Falcon? Uh, we'd be basically nowhere. We'd still be buying seats on the Soyuz. Uh, we'd have no chance of, of doing anything on our own. So um, yeah, I mean, a vehicle that was supposed to fly a decade ago that still hasn't gotten off the pad, maybe at the end of next month, we will see. But we need things that are going to inspire people. We need people that are going to be excited by what's happening in the space program and say, I want to be a part of that. That was one of the great things about Apollo was that it really did inspire an entire generation uh, to get into those kind of fields. Um, and it was such an absolute waste when Apollo was canceled. The aerospace industry went into a tailspin, and I don't know that it's ever recovered. I mean, we've had ups and downs, but uh, I mean, from the Wright brothers through the end of Apollo is a very direct line, and everything keeps moving forward and moving forward until the end of Apollo, and then everything sort of sort of falls apart. Uh, it's one of the things I talk about with regard to the X-15 program is the fact that here we had the highest and fastest research aircraft that ever flew. And everybody that I spoke with on the program just saw it as the next step. They never ever saw it as being the ultimate research aircraft. They expected the next generation to come up and it, and it never has. And that is a really sad statement uh, that we just aren't, we don't seem to be doing that inspiration that we need to do to get people to want to get into this program and continue moving forward. So I, I hope that uh, that changes. Yeah, great advice. Yeah, uh, very well said. Uh, so about that cousinness, any advice based on your, um, uh, Apollo career and what you have seen and uh, any advice for the future lunar program? Uh, yeah, I'd like to, uh, let me get my screen back on. I'd like to share a screen if I could. Um, yeah, I, I uh, concur with a lot, every, almost everything that's been said, especially with regards to SLS. So, uh, I know quite a bit about SLS because uh, in the writing of this book, 
see if I can share that with you. Uh, in the writing of this book, uh, I started to say, uh, we learned a lot, and here's an article about the last ditch effort to save the, to save the space shuttle program. Uh, and, and there's a proposal out now for a film and there's some interest by the BBC. Point I'm trying to make is that uh, I learned a lot about SLS and how it was such so the wrong way to go. But um, the the uh, be, besides the cost of it, which is uh, horrendous, and the time, because in actually in, in our proposal to save the shuttle, we were we were proposing a 2013 launch of a one of the space shuttles that was gonna be retired to prove the concept. And we were told you can't have, um, you can't have uh, a shuttle because we need it for SLS. So all those parts have to go to SLS. But, but here's the real crazy thing. NASA dreamed up the space shuttle as a reusable vehicle. The whole idea was reusability. And, and that was the message that actually was passed, that NASA used to pass on and, and that's what really got Elon Musk and SpaceX started. The whole notion of reusability is what cut the cost all the way to hell down. And now you have, the crazy thing is you have NASA building an SLS, launching an SLS with shuttle main engines that it is going to drop into the Atlantic Ocean, never to be used again. So, so not only is it crazy from a cost and a time standpoint, but the whole notion of reusability, which the space shuttle and NASA started is now gone out the window. If you think about, the only way to describe that is insane. And for somebody who worked for NASA on and off for 50 years, I am so gobsmacked by this complete lack of transparency or understanding and you hear NASA people trying to justify, somehow justify SLS. I just don't get it, but thank goodness that uh, that SpaceX and the commercial uh, entities that came along uh, didn't buy into that. And that's why we have a program that's viable. And uh, if, if you ask me, one of the uh, one of the last parts of this book uh, addresses Elon Musk and the chances to go to Mars and how who's gonna go to Mars and how and when. And it, it talks about uh, the cost difference and it talks about a, a commercial entity that is not saddled by bureaucracy or politics. The thing about Musk and Bezos is they can do whatever the hell they want. They don't need to go through all the bureaucratic political gates that NASA has to go through in order to do this. And that's why they, they probably will, uh, will end up getting there a lot faster. Um, and that is, a, by the way, I describe this in the book, that there's another side to the story, which uh, many people don't think about. If you think about SpaceX versus NASA, in a way, it's like comparing a dictatorship to a democracy, because as complex and undulating and infuriating and political as NASA is, what it isn't is it's not a dictatorship. It attempts to spread the wealth. It, the whole way that NASA is set up is to issue an RFP, have everybody who wants to bid on it, have teams evaluate the bids according to a very you know, long-standing protocol like, like scoring a test, 
and then giving it out to a prime contractor, and then the prime contractor coming back and giving it to subcontractors. And so all of the wealth gets spread. You know, the, the downside is it takes forever to do this. It's infuriating and it ain't the best way to do it. Hands down, it's not the best way to do it. But so when, whenever I want to really pan NASA for what they're doing and the direction they're going, I'm only talking about the human spaceflight program. I'm not talking about the unmanned program, which is extraordinary and the, aeros the aeronautics program, all that other stuff that NASA does, which is extraordinary. Only talking about the human spaceflight program. Uh, you you got to consider both ends of the, of the, the pie here. And uh, so, yeah, uh, if you want, I can. I found that little video of uh, Neil and um, uh, testifying. Dr. Dr. We only have a few minutes in the panel. Okay. And uh, we wish to hear from Aldo and uh, Alan. Uh, so, Aldo, uh, could you tell us about how do you think, you know, uh, about for education and the future space program? Uh, okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to have to get going here shortly. But uh, uh, I just wanted to say I, I, I agree with just about everything that Michelle and, uh, and Lawrence uh, said, especially about SLS. I, you know, I, I wish them luck. I hope the, the, the vehicle works at least for this massive investment. But, uh, you know, it, it just seems to me the logical thing to do is you know, let commercial worry about uh, uh, Earth to orbit. They're obviously doing it well. I, I can't wait till we see new Glenn uh, of launch from uh, the Blue Origin as well, and hopefully get into a. You know, they seem to be much much slower at deploying uh, as opposed to SpaceX, but that's okay. I'd, behind the scenes, I know that a lot of good stuff is going on. So I think NASA should just focus on exploration and move their operations outward. Let the commercial world handle getting stuff into orbit. It makes perfect sense to me to do that, um, and. Uh, and then there's the whole debate of, you know, moon versus Mars. I, I'm a big fan of uh, infrastructure. It's not as exciting as going to Mars. I think we should go to Mars. But as far as human survival, the, the best thing to do is to build a robust economy in cis-lunar space. And I hope that's the direction we go. But, um, you know, I, uh, I'm encouraged that the young people that I am involved with seem to be very excited about uh, space and all the possibilities. So, um, we just need to do more uh, uh, public outreach at you know at all levels, uh, companies as well as NASA, and just get kids involved. Um, it's been a pleasure uh, being part of this. Uh, I'm going to have to bail out, but uh, thanks everyone. Thanks Ken. I appreciate being part of this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Aldo. Thank you, Aldo. Yeah, your work is very inspiring. Uh, okay, Adam, how do you think? As well. I'm sorry, I apologize. You know, Space 99, those are ego, transporter, and uh, your designs, you know, certainly very inspiring. Thank you. Um, so, um, Eli doesn't fully understand 100% what's going on, but um, he But will, he's very excited. He's, he's very, he's very advanced, four-year-old, very, very advanced for a kid. I have great hopes. Anyway, cheers, guys. You guys are really great. I, I, it's been an honor. Yeah, so thank you, thank you. Uh, so our time time is up. I really apologize uh, for the earlier technical issue for, for the first talk and uh, but, but we have a wonderful panel session. So thank you so much.
and uh, uh, this is a wonderful discussion. Uh, hopefully, we can do it uh, uh, next time for much longer. I have to apologize this time. Initially, we planned for in-person hybrid event, but the venue um, Ken kind of back up the last minute, so we kind of have to focus on online. But thank you so much. This is so wonderful. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Dr. Kastner. Well, thank you, Ken, for having us. And uh, yeah, I would love to come back and, and do a, a much deeper discussion about uh, Neil, Apollo, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's always so much uh, more that we can say about it. Exactly. That's a full, full length of talk. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take uh, so, care. Have a great, uh, great time and uh, a happy 53rd anniversary of Apollo 11 coming up this week. And also tomorrow is the 60th anniversary of the very first winged vehicle ever making a space flight with Robert White in the X-15, July 17th of 1962. So just thought I'd throw that one in there. Sorry. We should start to do the anniversary for X-15. Sounds good. Excellent. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Dr. Kastner, too. Okay, and I'll, uh, I'll throw in a, a little additional thing here if I can. Uh, Gary, uh, just uh, I, we, our next exhibitor is coming, so we do it after her. Is that okay? Okay, well, I'm not sure how long Bob can stay here, but anyway, uh, this is uh, Bob Seacrest who worked logistics and training throughout the Apollo program and also the space shuttle program. And uh, he's, he's worked with us on the Wright Flyer project, which you see in the background, almost since its inception, I believe. And so, uh, so anyway. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, we yep. salute you, Bob. We salute you. Thank you for your contribution, excellent work for Apollo and the space shuttle. Do you want to say a few words? I, I can stay and say way too many words. Yeah, your sound, your voice breaking up. Sure, but I just jumped in here uh, partway when Lawrence was talking about various. <laughs> That's because I, there's an airplane right outside the hangar. I really agree with most everything I heard Lawrence say. The reason that we couldn't afford two vehicles, a launch vehicle that would return with the engines, and then a gliding vehicle with the rest of the stuff we only needed on orbit. But NASA couldn't afford the money, to, at least in their opinion, to develop two manned vehicles during the same time frame. So there's a lot of history. I'm sure you guys know as much about it as I do. All right, so um, yeah, well, I'm not sure how long Bob can can, can hang around. We we're waiting out. for for the uh, for one of the former chairman of the Bright Flyer Project. We're, so. we're waiting for Professor Kulik from Caltech to show up, and I wanted to meet him outside the door here. So we'll hear when he gets here. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Bob. And it's wonderful to have. Uh, uh, we salute you for real um, contribution to Apollo and the shuttle and American space program.
We actually have another uh, gentleman here, uh, Mr. Randy Dawson. He's also involved with Apollo. Uh, but we have Leia uh, here. She's going to talk about uh, STEM education because Apollo and the Viking was so inspiring and it's very important to pass on the experience and uh, use it in, in a STEM education. So she is going to tell us about the incorporation in and uh, her and their effort in the STEM education. So go ahead, Leah. All right, um, thank you, Ken. Um, and just thank you to everyone um, who's on today's meeting. I'm just gonna give you a quick uh, 15 minute briefing presentation. Let me share my screen. Um, but I just wanted to say um, it was really awesome to hear the last panelists and hear how um, passionate they are and also just learn a little bit more about how um, it is important to um, continue on, you know, inspiring the youth uh, for STEM in general. So that's kind of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am here from Encore STEM Teacher Program. Um, and I'm gonna to talk to you a bit about two programs that we currently have here at Encore um, to become a fellow or to become a STEM X tutor. All right, so just some quick introductions. Um, this is our team at Encore right now. We are working to expand. So perhaps the next time I present, you'll see some new faces. Um, but on the left side, we have recruitment, and I know it's just a picture of myself. Um, and a bit about me is, hi, my name is Leah Rodriguez. I am the Teaching Fellowship Recruiter here at Encore. I recruit for um, uh, all of California, Colorado, New York City, and New Jersey. And I am actually a 2020 um, first-generation college graduate from DePaul University. Um, DePaul is in Indiana, so I'm not sure if anyone knows it, but um, as you, I'm currently stationed in LA, so I'm a long ways from home, but I'm enjoying the weather and, and just enjoying the landscape of uh, uh, LA. And I love working for Encore because as I mentioned, I'm a first generation college graduate. So um, I know how important it is to have great STEM education and just great educators in general in your low income schools. Um, and then right here on the right side, we have uh, the program team. Um, if you were to engage with Encore and become a fellow, you would be assigned a program coordinator based on which region you reside in. And all of our program coordinators have been teachers before. So they've been through a, a career transition of some sort and they've gone through the process of becoming credentialed. Um, so they're a great resource for you to have and you'll get to know them quite personally during your um, Encore journey. So um, I'm gonna give you a bit um, of background about the mission and impact here at Encore. So here at Encore, we believe that all students should have access to great STEM education and opportunities. But unfortunately, that's not currently the case. Um, there are actually crisis level teacher shortages in California and Colorado. And those are just two of the regions that Encore is currently serving, right? So, um, and we're, when we look at these sh uh, shortages, they're even more pronounced in schools that have high numbers of students of color um, and students that are living and um, learning in low income uh, communities and schools. 
So uh, this is where STEM industry leaders like yourself can come in because um, you all have the expertise and perhaps you have the want or interest to get involved in public education. Um, and with Encore, you can truly make a difference by exploring teaching. Um, so Encore is currently the only nonprofit in the nation that is enabling STEM professionals to make a career transition to teaching in a low risk, highly supported way. Our fellowship is an innovative long-term solution to enduring that STEM opportunity and literacy gap that we see disproportionate, disproportionately limiting uh, low-income students and students of color. Um, and we at Encore, we truly believe that STEM industry leaders bring that technical skill, leadership, and real-world expertise to these classrooms. And with this, they're able to deliver an authentic, rigorous, and relevant STEM education to those students who need it the most. Um, I'm sure we can all think back to school where we'd either said or we heard a student say, why are we learning this? What is the point? Well, with uh, you being uh, an accomplished and uh, learned STEM educator and you've been out in the industry and you've really seen like you're seeing what what the point of that lesson really is, that makes all the difference uh, as you being like a part of representation in that in those classrooms. So um, we're trying to tap into this resource that we don't see anyone exactly tapping into um, and engaging in the same way as Encore. Um, to share a few statistics, uh, Encore Fellows impact about 38,000 students annually in low-income communities, and we have an 88% five-year teacher retention rate, which is compared to the nearly 50% of teachers that typically do remain in low-income districts after five years of teaching. So that's a pretty cool number for us to share. And we're also proud to say that we bring diversity to the classroom. So about 45% of our fellows identify as teachers of color, whereas the average is about 18% in schools. So that's also a statistic that I'm really proud to share. Um, we do believe that our support, professional development and preparation contribute to these awesome rates. And speaking of uh, support and professional development, I'm gonna talk you through a few of the benefits of becoming an Encore Teaching Fellow. So um, we have, uh, we really just want our fellows um, and future educators to um, have those connections and experiences in order to thrive as a new teacher once they get into the classroom. So um, beginning with your Encore Fellowship, your Encore Fellowship begins with one semester of guest teaching in a classroom um, and you'd be paired, uh, we have partners in each region, um, you'd be paired with a teacher that has three or more years of teaching experience under their belt. Um, so this is a great opportunity to kind of just Dip, dip your toes in and kind of observe and see what it would look like to even be a STEM teacher before um, you make any crazy changes or begin your career um, transition, so to say. Um, but this would be a commitment of two hours um, per week for 10 weeks. And again, um, this would be a pair, a match between Encore and yourself. Um, along with the guest teaching experience, you're gonna be supported by your program coordinator and the program team. 
Um, as I mentioned, they can guide you through the process to earning your credentials so that you're qualified to work as a full-time teacher in these classrooms. Um, they're also gonna observe you at that school site for that one semester of guest teaching. And they also provide connections um, between fellows and the schools. And they're also working with you to prepare for teaching interviews and just making sure that you feel fully supported um, as you enter your own classroom. Now, Encore also provides uh, credentialing resources, research and exam study materials. So in order to be a full-time teacher, you will have to go through credentialing and earn a credential um, to teach as a full-time teacher. Um, our program coordinators, they have personal relationships with a lot of the university partners and county of offices of education. Again, just making sure that you're succeeding as you go through um, teacher licensing or credentialing. Um, we are also constantly offering a robust slate of professional development, and we host a few events, um, a lot of events, I would say, throughout the year for fellows. Um, we have a summer institute, which is a week-long practical interactive work session. And during these sessions, um, you're going through topics such as instructional strategies, um, classroom management, diversity and inclusion, just topics that we believe um, have been successful in helping us prepare educators to enter the classroom. And right away, you'll also receive access to online professional development modules through Google Classroom. As we know, we are living in a virtual time, so Encore is doing its best to keep everyone connected and make sure that um, fellows entering the fellowship feel like they have that sense of community, whether that be through Google Classroom or in-person events as we um, work to become more in-person again. Um, but on top of all of this, you are going to be having that cohort of peers that are all sharing that experience of transitioning from working in STEM industry to now um, looking at what it would be or completely committing to becoming a teacher in low income schools. Um, so again, we're just making sure that um, fellows feel supported and feel like they have that sense of community when doing so. And also we like to, we know that it's helpful to have a a network uh, or have a foot in the door for creating network when you're transitioning. Um, so again, we do have those close partnerships with um, schools in the region and also um, just credentialing programs to set you up. So um, we do have some eligibility requirements here at Encore for the fellowship. So these are the um, eligibility baselines for the fellowship. You would have to live within a region that we're currently serving. And this is due to the one semester of observational guest teaching of you actually going into our partner schools. Um, you would also need to have at least one year or more of actual STEM industry field experience, or perhaps you have an advanced degree in the STEM field, so that would also qualify you. Um, you must be eligible to work in the U.S., and you must hold an undergrad degree with a 2.5 or higher, and you must not currently have a teaching degree or a teaching credential in the subject that you're intending to teach through Encore, and that's because the second step of our fellowship is going back to credentialing. So if you're already credentialed, um, I am very thankful and grateful for you um, for already starting that process. But um, at that point, you don't really need on-course help. So that's just something to keep in mind. So um, we do have two timelines uh, that would um, be of an option to you if you were considering the fellowship. Um, you don't have to have this um, information understood or selected 
um, by the time you're going through the application process, because we do continue to um, make sure that you understand the material completely um, by the time you become a fellow. So with the accelerated route and standard route, um, beginning with the accelerated route, um, both, both um, routes you take are gonna begin with that one semester of volunteer guest teaching that I mentioned. Now, the difference between standard and accelerated depends on how quickly you would like to get into the classroom to teach. So with the accelerated route, you'd be able to be teaching your own full-time classroom by 2023. And this would require you to take courses and go back to your credentialing program at the same time that you're running your full-time classroom. So this is for individuals who are 100% sure that they wanna be teachers and they're 100% sure and ready and eager to get into that classroom. Um, but most of our fellows are, you know, they're with Encore because they want to figure out if this is for them and they wanna take their time, which is completely okay. Um, our standard route would allow you to take that one to two years of earning your credential and doing coursework. And then once you're fully credentialed, you'd begin looking for full-time teaching and teaching. Um, so you'd be teaching in 2024 for this route. Um, and again, uh, this is totally up to you as a um, individual, what you see yourself succeeding at, but I just wanted to put it out there that we do have two pathways out there. Um, because we have different people coming in from different backgrounds and situations, um, and we'd like to be as accommodating as we can here at Encore. So um, I just wanted to mention that career transition is not for everyone, um, but here at Encore, we do have a second side of Encore, where it's a tutoring program. So um, Laura and Ashley are going are overseeing the STEMX tutor program. And this program is 100% virtual, and it requires um, one semester of commitment, but you'd be uh, getting on Zoom to tutor for about two hours per week at a time that makes sense for both you and the student. Um, as you can see, there's a lot more uh, different uh, scenarios that will, would allow you to be eligible for this program. But if you're um, a STEM individual, a STEM professional, and you're just, you love STEM, you're not thinking about transitioning at all, perhaps you would consider um, becoming a STEMX tutor and just dedicating uh, your knowledge and providing representation in that way. Um, I do encourage you to kind of look into this program instead of on for, I mean, in, instead of the fellowship. Um, and also, I just wanted to say that a lot of people begin with the STEMX tutor program. Um, and if they love it so much and love working with students, then perhaps they'll come over to my side. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that that was an option, as I know, uh, career transitioning is a very serious thing. And for some people, it's not on their radar, and that's okay. That does bring me to um, the end of my presentation. Um, I just wanted to say that if you are interested, I do host info sessions. I have much more information. It's about 40 minutes long and I hold, I hold those um, monthly. Um, you can also reach out to me via my information that's here. So email, email preferred, but you can also reach me by um, phone by leaving me a voicemail. Um, and I just wanted to draw your attention that we just opened our applications for the fiscal year on July 1st, and we have a rolling application application here. Um, so if you are interested at any point, uh, please 
feel free to begin your application at www.oncor.org apply, or just reach out to me directly if you have a few questions. Um, but again, I just wanted to say thank you so much to Ken and to everyone at AIAA for inviting me back to present on something that I'm so passionate about. Um, and it's really awesome to also hear the passion in everyone else's uh, panel, you know, introduction and presentations. Um, it's really cool to see, and I hope that um, some of you consider impacting the educational, um, just education right now. So thank you so much. Um, I think I used up all my time. Uh, but again, I hope you all have a great rest of your day, and thank you again so much. Uh, thank you, Leif. It's very important for STEM education uh, to carry on the Apollo and the Viking spirit and uh, the experience. And uh, the next talk by uh, Felipe is uh, very exciting for the new trend using the virtual reality. That could be very exciting you know, for your program as well. And overall inspired by the lunar Mars effort and uh, the new technology. But before we go on, uh, we, we actually have uh, Apollo engineer uh, join us, Mr. Randy Dawson. So we'd like to recognize him and uh, uh, salute him. Oh, Felipe, I think, yeah, now should be okay. So before you start, uh, Randy, do you want to say a few words? We salute you, we want to recognize you. Randy, Mr. Dawson. Uh, could you say a few words? I cannot hear you. Uh, all right, if not, we'll try it again after Felipe's talk. So uh, uh, we'll, you can tell us more about you at that time. Thank you. Uh, so Felipe, go ahead. Uh, uh, Felipe has a very long time experience on the virtual reality platform. Uh, he did uh, five or six platform, uh, even better than uh, uh, Meta. So uh, you'll hear a lot from him, how he got inspired by the Apollo and uh, they create this uh, virtual platform for uh, uh, virtual reality. And he will do a very exciting demo. Thank you, Felipe, go ahead. Hi, everybody. Um, do you see me? Um... Do you see my shared screen? Uh, I don't see your face, but I see your slide. Actually, uh, you should be seeing my face now. No, yes, that... I show up now. Okay, great. So, um, hello everybody. Um, I'm here to, and I'm honored uh, to have been invited to speak about Virtual Moon which is a very ambitious uh, virtual reality and augmented reality and extended reality project um, that uh, aims to offer everyone, um, the general public as well as professionals, a virtual space-time portal to the moon. So let me uh, start by um, introducing myself perhaps. So, um, I um, have been called a pioneering metaverse uh, and XR, extended reality 
uh, creator uh, since 1991. I founded uh, the eSpaces uh, studio um, in 1993, and to our knowledge, it is the oldest continuously operated virtual reality studio uh, with which we have won multiple awards over the uh, over the three decades uh, that I've been uh, working in this field. So um, I'm also a very precocious uh, lifetime space buff because uh, here you see uh, me, I'm not even two years old, on the arm of my late father, um, and uh, I don't remember this because at that age you, you don't uh, create long-term memories yet, but uh, my father uh, insisted and told me many times that uh, he made sure that I was an eyewitness of this uh, momentous historic event of the first uh, man on the moon, the first foot on the moon. And so uh, fast forward to my teenage years and uh, the very first organization that I ever started was a nonprofit uh, called the Belgian Space Information Center because I was uh, born and bred in uh, the uh, country of Belgium. And so from age 12 to 18, I um, collected uh, the, uh, to my knowledge, the richest documentation center and, you know, with models and movies and, and everything uh, space flight uh, in the low countries. I also dabbled as a, oh, you have been signed out because you're trying to sign in. Um, am I still okay? I saw a notification from Zoom here. Um, Hello, please confirm because I got a notification yeah, yeah. from Zoom. We're uh, good? I think your slide is kind of truncated. Maybe you should reshare. Okay, I'm going to reshare. Um, so I got a strange notification from um, Zoom. Okay, are we, are we good again? Slides? Uh, it's coming up. How is it coming up? Okay, it seems good with the Belgian yes. space information center. So, but you, you're getting it truncated? No, now it's okay. Okay, great. So I was saying that I've also dabbled as a precocious uh, spaceflight journalist, uh, publishing in English, which is not my native language, uh, my first uh, cover article in astronomy magazine about the European space flight. Uh, in May of 1986. And uh, so big space buff and actually lifelong advocate of space settlement uh, here. And of course, it was a great joy for me to be able to combine, com combine my passion for space flight with my 30-year uh, um, professional career uh, as a virtual reality creator. And that is where the Virtual Moon Project uh, arose. The Virtual Moon Project itself is actually the brainchild of Manuel Pimenta, um, who was going to try and join us here. I don't know if he succeeded in that, uh, who is an electrical engineer and computer scientist uh, by uh, training. And um, he uh, also has a storied history as a space settlement enthusiast and advocate. Uh, but importantly, uh, he created a, a project uh, called um, 
let me go to the right slide. Um, so quite a few years ago, uh, even earlier in the history of um, um, oh, here it is, yes. Uh, so he created in, and, and launched and published in 2006, a virtual, a, a first virtual reality simulation of the moon called Lunar Explorer. And uh, that was available for sale for multiple years. And he showed it off at multiple um, events. Uh, so it was basically a Windows uh, PC application that you could uh, look at on your uh, PC, but that you could also access in what were then extremely expensive immersive uh, VR headsets. And so here you see Bert Rutan uh, trying out the uh, Lunar Explorer uh, application. And so... Um, Fast forward to uh, today, Manny and I found each other and we wanted to create uh, together. Um, he basically wanted to do a, a better version of uh, Lunar Explorer and he wanted it to be even more ambitious and of course, uh, better in terms of everything graphics as well as uh, multi-user visitable because Lunar Explorer was not multi-user. So um, what, what Manny wanted to do and, and uh, where uh, he and I found each other is that he wanted to create the most accurate, realistic, detailed and complete virtual reality simulation of the moon uh, using state-of-the-art multi-user virtual reality technology, the latest in lunar data, including uh, real-time and basically offer people, uh, consumers as well as professionals, a fun and exciting place to visit and hang out with friends and thereby become a, a space-time uh, portal. So uh, to our knowledge, um, oh, this is a slide about the first that Manny achieved um, with Lunar Explorer. So. Back in 2004, it already was the, the first fully immersive interactive VR simulation of the moon with the entire moon visitable. Uh, so a complete visual simulation of all uh, the surface of the moon. You could land there and look around and, and walk around running on a standard Windows computer, uh, including all the successful landing sites. So as the, uh, the Apollo, Surveyor, Soviet lunar missions, etc. And Actually, today it still runs on Windows uh, 11. So here's a screenshot from the uh, from one from uh, from one of the Apollo landing uh, uh, places in Lunar Explorer, and this is what it looks like in a virtual moon. So you see uh, how we how far we've come along, uh, and. The, there are many other differences between Virtual Moon and Lunar Explorer, but uh, it is obvious that since 2004 or 2005, six, the graphics capabilities of computers have enormously improved. Not only the graphics capabilities, but uh, where Lunar Explorer only ran on Windows PCs, uh, Virtual Moon will run on any device any device, any browser, and anywhere, anytime uh, using the web uh, as access. So 
the uh, virtual moon, when it will be complete, will be accessible on smartphones, tablets, laptops, desktops, virtual reality headsets, augmented reality headsets, and even on game consoles. So, and it will also use uh, the latest in um, rendering technology. So not, not everybody uh, has a, a fire breathing gaming PC in their home. And so for those people uh, who still want uh, real-time photorealistic views and, and access uh, to the moon, uh, we will offer uh, that uh, with real-time ray tracing, etc., through a technology called cloud rendering. And so this has been pioneered by NVIDIA and others uh, and enables uh, people to show ray traced real-time graphics at very high frame rates with, with crazy numbers of polygons on underpowered devices like a smartphone or like an untethered uh, VR headset. So um, my company uh, is, happens to also currently be producing a very ambitious metaverse. And we will be breaking cover uh, on that in um, the second half of September. And so all of the technology that we are developing uh, for our metaverse will also be used for Virtual Moon because Virtual Moon will actually also have a presence in our metaverse. Uh, there will be a Virtual Moon in our metaverse which uh, will be one of the ways of accessing uh, all of the virtual moon content. But the virtual moon content will also be accessible without having to go through our metaverse directly from the virtual moon website, uh, both in the consumer version as well as in virtual moon pro, which is the professional version, which I will um, come back to a bit later in the uh, presentation. So Right, where are we now uh, with uh, the Virtual Moon project? Well, um, Manny um, found uh, a modest uh, budget to build a few teasers, a, a demo, if you like, and we call that demo the Virtual Moon under construction. And so we are 95% done with that. Uh, so we will be soon publishing the virtual moon under construction, which is again, a demo. It's not the full virtual moon, but it gives people a taste of what virtual moon will be like by means of offering uh, six vignette experiences. And uh, my, the rest of my presentation will mostly be a uh, show and tell where I give you an avant premiere preview of some of these uh, vignette uh, virtual reality experience that are part of the virtual moon under construction co uh, collection. Um, the entire collection consists of an overview of the South Pole, uh, which I will show. Uh, it also shows the landing of Apollo 11. So you are standing on the moon surface, uh, looking up into the sky, and then you hear the astronauts talking and as they uh, communicate with Houston while uh, Neil and, and, um, and Buzz are doing their final descent and land on the moon and you see them literally land uh, in front of you in virtual reality. I will show you that as well. 
we also have the Apollo Tranquility Base, which is a uh, virtual reality representation of how the what the moon looks like uh, at this moment, um, 50 years or more after um, the uh, two astronauts uh, left the, the site. Um, we have an orbital mechanics module. I will not be showing that uh, today. And we uh, will also have a, a Malapert Summit uh, panoramic lounge, which I will not be showing, probably not, uh, but it is, uh, the idea is that as part of Celine, which I will talk about in a moment, there will be a panoramic launch, a surface observation uh, dome uh, right at the summit of Malapert Mountain, which is the tallest lunar mountain on the south pole of the moon, and maybe even one of the, probably even one of the tallest mountains on the moon period. And then the sixth and final element of the virtual moon under construction is the Selene construction site. So I will get uh, in more in depth uh, there as I show it to you. But that basically is uh, the will show a virtual reality scene of the last phase of the construction, the excavation of a huge uh, volume inside the tip, the top of the mountain uh, of Mount Malapert in order to put in there later, the, the virtual reality doesn't show that, but it shows the final stages of the, the digging of the, of the tubes and the big uh, central volume of a lunar city uh, called Selene. Selene uh, is the name of the ancient Greek uh, demigoddess for the moon. Uh, Luna in, in Latin. Um, and so Selene is to be a, a city uh, of three to 5,000 inhabitants, uh, about which I will tell you a lot more. But importantly, uh, the Selene construction site and Selene itself is intended to be a realistic uh, design of a future lunar city. Um, so realistic that uh, once we are done with building Selene construction uh, in virtual reality completely, one should be able in principle to build exactly the same thing in the real Malapert mountain, inside the real Malapert mountain on the South Pole of the moon. Okay, so now let me switch to some uh, demos. Um, the first demo that I would like to show you is um, the um, South Pole of the Moon. Um, let's go there. Um, I will need to stop sharing and uh, just give me a second to um, go there. Okay, and let me uh, share that with you now. Okay. And Okay, there we go. So um, here you see um, the, uh, we're already landed and um, I, I want to zoom out because um, I want to give you the overview first. And so um, the, this basically is a virtual reality uh, interactively navigable version of the South Pole of the Moon using uh, 
topology data, uh, so geometry and textures captured by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And then we, we, we cut out uh, some of that data and we uh, turned it into a virtual reality space that you can visit on the, on the web. And uh, here I'm at sufficient altitude now. So if, if the frame rate uh, in what you are seeing on your screen is a bit choppy, then this is because of the screen sharing uh, of um, Zoom. Uh, I can assure you that when you see this in your browser on your computer, the frame rate is, is uh, very high and buttery smooth. So I switch on the labels of the uh, various um, uh, craters. And then the one feature that we have in this overview of the South Pole is that this is the, the magic of virtual reality. Here at the bottom, I have this slider, which enables me to interactively change the position of the sun vis-a-vis -vis the moon. And all of this is astronomically accurate. And so uh, thanks to a feature in, uh, in this VR platform called dynamic uh, shadows, we can literally dynamically change the, have the shadows be recalculated uh, using the, the moon uh, topology uh, in real time. And so this is, um, it also shows uh, the ice deposits on the, this is an overlay showing where there are uh, water ice deposits on the south pole of the moon. And those of you uh, interested in that will know that, you know, there, there are some cold traps in these uh, craters. And um, so um, that's the overview of the, of the South Pole. Um, we can also navigate to some different uh, viewpoints, such as here we inserted a little fictional uh, lunar settlement uh, on the rim of Shackleton Crater. And um, just to give you a bit of a uh, reference of the dimensions. And so zooming on to some other uh, sites here, um, I will go forward through the list of available um, sites until we see Malapert Mountain. I like to show you where Malapert is in relationship to the South Pole, because when I show you the construction site for Selene, uh, that is actually located literally at the summit of Mount Malapert, which you see here in the center of your view. And um, there again, so this way I can give you some context and you can see here how the, uh, the Malapert Ridge, because I mean, yes, it is the highest point, but it really is a ridge rather than a single peak uh, mountain. And uh, this is the site that uh, Manuel Pimenta uh, selected for uh, locating uh, Saline, uh, the Saline Lunar City. Okay, actually, uh, I will go to the Saline construction site uh, first, so um, let me switch screens again.
And uh, where is it? Okay. Yes. So I hope you guys see uh, see that properly. Um, do tell me if it doesn't show up properly at your end. So here we are uh, at the top of Mount Malapert uh, that you just saw in that overview. And um, here we show you, whoops, that was a bit fast. We show you the, uh, in red, the built volumes, uh, man-made uh, volumes of Malapert, uh, sorry, of Saline, the, the city inside the tip of the, of the mountain of Malapert. So the main, uh, main place of uh, the city is what we call the atrium, which is a circular area, 300 meters in diameter and 100 meters wide. And so that is uh, all underneath the summit of Mount Malapert, which is marked here. So the highest point of Malapert Mons is 5,174 meters high, uh, right there at that vertical uh, yellow line. And so uh, right under that uh, vertical line is the dome of the surface observation dome that I mentioned earlier. And so the uh, Selene that is buried under the uh, surface uh, also has these two tubes. And so each of these tubes is 485 meters diameter uh, length, sorry. And they are 40 meter wide and 17 meters high tubes. Uh, the atrium together with those two tubes uh, comprise the pressurized volume of uh, Saline, the lunar city. And then to the left and right, you see what we call terraces. And uh, <coughs> these terraces are uh, on the lunar surface, but they are made using the tailings of the excavation work of Selene. And let me zoom in on one of them. So the length, so here you have the exit of the tube where the, the tube intersects with the lunar surface. So this is where it comes out. And um, all of this is just a blocking diagram and a work in progress. So we haven't done the, the fine detail work on the, the tube, et cetera, yet. So this is just to give you a general idea of what we're building there. But so uh, in front of the entrance or the gate of the, the tube, there is a terrace that is 550 meters long and 100 meters wide, uh, at the end of which there is a uh, landing and launch pad for SpaceX Starships and so that landing pad is 100 meter diameter. And so the, the center of that landing pad is located at exactly 500 meters, half a kilometer to the entrance of the nearest uh, tube, which uh, should be a safe enough distance, especially when we add a berm uh, here later uh, to prevent any explosions or rapid disassemblies uh, to uh, damage anything that is uh, placed uh, on the surface of these uh, terraces or the, uh, the lock, the airlocks, et cetera, at the gates uh, to the uh, city. Now, one thing that is not correctly shown in this um, 
diagram is that the sides of these terraces look vertical uh, here. In fact, uh, when we are done with this construction uh, project, uh, they will actually be sloping at a 45 degree angle, which is the angle of repose for um, granulated uh, lunar regolith or, or bedrock, which is what the tailings that will come out of the excavation effort to excavate the atrium and the tubes. So imagine this with uh, slopes all around at a 45 degree angle. And so let me move to the other terrace because that's an uh, interesting one from uh, multiple points of view. So here, uh, there are uh, not many, but still a few craters in and around uh, the top of Mount Malapert. Uh, and in fact, there is a set of tr three, which you can see here. I'm going to change the angle of illumination a bit so that you can uh, have a greater appreciation of the... Uh, um, of the... of the... The crater here, what we call it the South Crater or the Southern Crater. Uh, it doesn't have an official name to our knowledge. But what we did here is that we figured that we could make the we could keep the tubes relatively short by making the South Tube come out to the lunar surface on the sloping side of this uh, existing crater, this naturally existing crater, and then fill up the crater with the tailings. And because you know, there's a lot of tailings that need to be gotten rid of. And so we, we use that, the, the natural uh, cavity of that um, crater to fill that up with the uh, tailings and build the uh, South Terrace, which again has uh, this another uh, launch and landing pad. So there will be two um, on Malapert, uh, or rather uh, on Malapert Mountain, but in uh, as part of Saline City. This is the top view. Um, and so I can zoom out to give you a context again. So uh, Saline is at the center of this um, lunar terrain. And I'm zooming out now beyond where uh, users or visitors will be able to visit. Uh, just in order to show you how big a piece of uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter data that we have converted to VR. And uh, we've done that. It, it's a, a labor of love because uh, given that we are delivering these uh, virtual reality experiences in web browsers, uh, so there are limitations um, and we, we need to use levels of detail, uh, it, which might be something that uh, is familiar to people who have worked with uh, 3D animation and real-time 3D graphics and maybe game development. So um, that's the plan view. This is the uh, overview. Again, I can uh, switch between the various uh, angles of illumination. Uh, notice in this view that the highest level of resolution is here in this rectangle, and so it gets fuzzy over here. Uh, in the lower right corner. And that is because of what I just described, these levels of detail. So uh, nearest the uh, Saline uh, gates where people will actually be visiting the, um, uh, the, the moon surface in virtual reality, uh, there we used the largest, the highest available resolution from LRO. And, and then the further out we go, we drop in resolution 
uh, things look still look great from a distance, but you know it. Um, um, so it's it's all uh, it's a big bag of tricks that we apply in order to make things look as great as possible uh, to every kind of device uh, using a web browser. Uh, one other thing that I like to mention is that um, the the axis. Let me let me do this. So you see this the 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 the, the vertical line. Uh, of uh, Saline City is actually exactly on the north-south axis of the moon. So it points uh, to the South Pole, which you see over there, which is on the edge of um, the um, Shackleton crater. And so the result of that is that when I position myself here at the tip of the terrace uh, and of the north pad then i see the the earth and the the sun should be nearby actually let me go back to let me re-enter uh reload and that way i can show you the uh, north pad vista you see here this is the view um looking out due north from the edge of the the pad here um with you know the one of the rockets uh the, the lunar starship uh, which we which we already are animating by the way if you wait long enough uh you can see a launch and landing and in the finished version all of this is just uh, uh with um uh, placeholders for the moment we will have an elevator coming uh up and down from the top of the uh, starship with two uh, space-suited astronauts in there to also give a sense of the scale of this entire scene. But um, it's pretty spectacular from a photographical point of view and from impressive vistas that, you know, uh, looking straight out of the north gate of Selene, you will see uh, the Earth Earth always uh, above the horizon uh, due north. And then of course the sun will be at different locations depending on uh, where we are in the orbit. But um, so here I've been, I'm moving the sun uh, back and forth um, to show you those uh, different uh, viewpoints. Now, let me show you uh, yet another version um of the same scene uh with better graphics uh we, we are working hard on making the lunar terrain um smooth and you know that you don't see these rectangles uh that we cut out from from lro data so that there is uh invisible seams between the different resolution levels of these um uh, sets of LRO data. So this one also doesn't show the transparency of the uh, mountain. And so you only see the terraces um, exiting or or outside of the um, uh, on the lunar surface. One more thing that some of you will have noticed is that there is a path, a string of dots of light dots, going from the top of Malapert Mountain from very near Selene uh, uh, City all the way to the South Pole, to Shackleton Crater. 
What is that? Well, one of our um, people at eSpace is, uh, is, a, is as big a space buff as I am. And uh, he said, what would be the best path for driving uh, in a wheeled vehicle from Celine to Shackleton? And so basically this path shows uh, the easiest path so that you don't have very steep um, graded hills all the way from the top of um, the summit of Malapert and Saline all the way to uh, Shackleton. It's a long drive. Um, and so, but that's the, the optimal path um, if you would like to, to drive uh, from Celine to Malapert or back. Uh, this, this lunar highway may actually become useful uh, if there needs to be a conveyance of uh, water eyes that is mined in Shackleton and to be brought to, um, to Celine. Now, let me switch back to my slide deck because I wanted to also show you some uh, other aspects that we are working on in the uh, virtual moon project and especially the Celine construction site. Uh, this is a screenshot showing, um, I'm not going to dwell on these, but um, so these are slide decks which uh, explain the, the atrium, the horizontal tube and the surface observation dome in a bit more detail than uh, what we have in the, in the scene at the moment. But what I wanted to show you is that uh, in this virtual reality scene, we will be showing swarms of robots, of autonomous robots doing all of the heavy duty uh, excavation work. So these are some early renders of uh, single function robots. They all share the same chassis and the same, same wheels, etc. cetera, uh, but they all have a single function which goes from the, uh, the, the jackhammers to do the excavation and then the, the loader, which put, puts the uh, excavated uh, bedrock into movers. The movers then move this uh, to dump sites. So here you have other views of the, the jackhammer and this is the, the sintering uh, robot, yes. So the, the sintering robot is at the last, uh, those will operate at the last end because the surfaces of the um, terraces will all be completely sintered, which means they will use microwave uh, technology or lasers to fuse with heat uh, the, the top layer consisting of fine powdered regolith uh, into a glassy uh, surface uh, that is no longer uh, dusty, etc., and so which will be uh, easier to work with. Um, these are some of the robots uh, working in concert to do uh, filtration, and um, here are some different views of the of the loader. Here's the, uh, a family shot of the various uh, robots. So these are not final designs, um, but I wanted to show these to you to show that in this virtual reality scene, we will be showing a lot of um, movement, a lot of animation. There will be small armies of these robots, um, swarms of them um, 
milling about the, uh, the scene in virtual reality and explaining how this huge excavation work is done. And so these are some render shots, not by us, of the lunar um, SpaceX Starship. So uh, imagine this, this one on the landing pad of the surface. And so we will have this in the virtual reality scene. We will have the elevator with two astronauts going up and down, showing, uh, giving the, a sense of scale to the entire operation. The, the, the entire concept of Celine does uh, suppose or presuppose the availability of the Starship, the lunar Starship for bringing an enormous amount of cargo to the moon. Uh, without that, uh, we will probably not be able to uh, get the robots there and the um, uh, also, for example, the, the pressure envelope for Celine, uh, we are thinking of doing that by means of graphene, which is much stronger and lighter than steel. But still, you know, you would need uh, two and a half uh, Starship uh, fully loaded with uh, graphene plates out of which we can make the pressure envelope to contain the um, atmosphere, et cetera, in, um, uh, of, of the pressurized part of Selene. So um, I am running out of time. Um, I wanted to show you the lunar landing experience and the, um, the, the Apollo 11 um, um, tranquility, base tranquility base. So I think we have that one up, right? Okay. So I'm while I'm loading that one um, to show it to you in the other web browser, let me uh, check if I wanted to show you any other slides from this uh, slide deck. We, we will have Q&A in a moment, so uh, ready your questions. Um, ah, this is an interior shot of um, Celine. So we wanted to be very uh, eco-modernist. And uh, so th this would be the atrium um, with a uh, simulated earth sky, etc. And um, so it, it's a very ambitious project. Um, and um, I am about to switch to the uh, other web browser for um, showing you the Apollo 11 Tranquility Base. Okay, here we go. So um, here you see um, our work in progress on the Apollo 11 uh, Tranquility Base uh, simulation. Let me uh, show you that uh, we can again control the sun in here. So um, as you see, uh, as I move the sun around the tranquility base, uh, I can see the, the rest better. Uh, one thing that you notice here is that this uh, already is a multi-user environment. And so my uh, associate, uh, Helen, uh, is uh, joined me here in this um, uh, Apollo 11 tranquility base scene. And so that illustrates the multi-user capability of, um, of virtual moon and of the virtual moon under construction demos. So 
we can actually have uh, entire meetings and conferences like the one we're having today inside of these scenes, um, because just like Zoom, but in our case, we can have up to 1,000 people inside of this uh, scene. Let me show you some other features of this scene while I'm at it. So I will remove the sun controller, but I will um, show, well, actually, this is a toggle where I can show the actual uh, historically accurate um, steps, footsteps of the Apollo 11 astronauts on the moon. And um, so I can also, when you are, especially when you're viewing this uh, scene immersively, uh, you can have a, uh, a futuristic spacesuit interior with a head-up display uh, showing um, showing inside the spacesuit. You see how when I move my uh, my head left to right, the dynamic lighting uh, and shadows correctly also shows uh, things inside of the um, of the visor. Uh, visiting the Apollo 11 uh, scene. Now, uh, some of you may say, well, it's probably not the case that the uh, flag is still standing uh, 50 years later and that the, fa the, the flag has probably also faded. Uh, so we are, uh, we are working on figuring out what is the most likely state of these uh, Apollo 11 uh, experiments and and features um, so that we can uh, realistically represent them. But you you do see that uh, even on the flag when I move the sun around, you see the the dynamic lighting and dynamic shadows that we can do on this uh, virtual reality rendering. And I remind you that you will be able to visit this scene in uh, in multi-user mode but uh, also immersively. Uh, in particular, this scene already works with the uh, Quest 2 virtual reality headset by uh, Meta, uh, which used to be called Facebook. And so um, let me show you some other things still. Okay, um, here we uh, added, this is something that we're still working on. So you see that in order to increase the realism of the, uh, of the scene uh, with small rocks, which obviously are not in LRO data. Um, we, we have a generator that automatically adds uh, small uh, rocks. Okay, I think I'm out of time. Um, I wanted to also show you the Apollo 11 landing experience, but um, maybe I will load that while I'm dealing with some uh, questions. And um, I may be able to uh, show it uh, in while answering questions. With that said, um, I did show you the main things that I wanted to show you of the Virtual Moon project where we are at the moment. Uh, Virtual Moon Under Construction will be published um, before the end of this year. And uh, there will be a Virtual Moon website, et cetera all of which, the goal of which is to raise the funds that will be needed for completing the virtual moon project in itself, which again is extremely ambitious because we want to offer everybody the next best thing to uh, being there uh, on the surface of the moon, any part of the moon. 
and uh, in multi-user fashion so that you can have uh, field trips with entire classrooms of pupils going to the moon immersively or on their web browsers. And um, uh, maybe one more word about the pro version. So our uh, virtual moon will be so accurate uh, that uh, we already have uh, professionals in the space industry expressing interest to use a professional version of the of virtual moon in order to do mission planning, for example. Uh, for example, with the astronomically correct simulation of the moon, we can calculate the optimal path uh, of a rover that uh, depends on photovoltaics for its uh, energy. Uh, to make sure that it has a path that is as maximally illuminated by solar light uh, hitting its uh, photovoltaic cells. Uh, and so we can calculate a path with optimal illumination at the challenging, uh, in the challenging topology of the uh, southern and northern poles of the moon. Uh, so that, you know, they don't get lost in shadows where, of course, they won't uh, be picking up any uh, electricity. So uh, there are other uh, uses for the professional version, but uh, I've run out of time and um, maybe I'll have an opportunity to uh, mention some of these in the questions. With that, I um, rest my case. I thank you for your kind attention and I open the floor to questions and answers. Uh, thank you, Philip. It is so exciting. I'm glad to see that your uh, virtual is going to be published later this year. Uh, hopefully, AIWA can uh, work with you uh, uh, for for some extent for the effort. Uh, actually, this is a great point. You brought the visor and the spacesuit. Our next speaker, Dr. Kasnes, actually uh, uh, was the spacesuit engineer for Apollo mission. Wonderful. So kind of nice thing. Yeah. So we are here from him and uh, this is great uh, transition to his, his talk. Um, but because we are kind of running out of time, um, if you have any question, please type in the Q&A for Felipe. And uh, we are certainly looking forward to future opportunity again with Felipe uh, to have you know, more detailed information and update of his, of his uh, uh, Celine and the uh, and the virtual moon. Okay, great. So, um, is is my understanding correct that we don't have time anymore for any questions? Uh, the question we leave it to Q and A because we are already a little bit late for okay. Dr. Katniss' talk. Okay, great. So yeah. I I will um, I will yield the floor and then um, I'll be present uh, at the Q and A at the end of the session. Thank you. Yeah. Thank did, you. Sorry, uh, Felipe. Uh, Ken, can you can you guys hear me? Because I did have a I did have one quest, question before I begin my. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Because I said this is a transition. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, first of all, very impressive, extremely impressive uh, presentation, the technology, the way you've done this. I just wanted to call your attention. Uh, this is not an essayer by any means, but my experience with a lot of STEM work that I've done in classrooms, and. Uh, overall is that the, the interest in the younger generation in the moon does not compare in any way, shape or form to Mars. And uh, there are many people, myself included, that believe if we do the kind of infrastructure that you're talking about 
on the moon, <clears throat> we will never get to Mars. Uh, and it, it's it's a it's a history track. We've we've seen this before. It's a black hole where once you get into something, so much money, so much time is put in, you you virtually never get out. So I, I would I would alert you to that as a caution, and I would I would say that there are programs similar to this. In fact, I worked on one uh, 20 years ago called Take a Walk on Mars, where you actually see. Uh, the, the Mars Reconnaissance uh, Orbiter images, uh, surface images through a, uh, a helmet as the person's walking on Mars and there are games. I'd like to talk to you about the games, but before I, uh, I just want you to, you know, I'm not by any way demeaning anything you're saying, because it's spectacular. I'm just saying that there's, there's other, other things to concentrate attention on. And the last thing I'd like to show you is this image that was taken by Apollo 8, this video very quick. Uh, hopefully you can see this. Uh, I need to stop sharing, which I've done now. Um, I, I do see it. Uh, that's that's wonderful. Uh, but what I wanted to say is... Uh, Just keep watching a second. Okay. okay, taking picture. Um, okay, POV. Just want you to hear their comments in about a minute. Uh-huh, so that's the lunar surface out of the window, yes. Um, so... Um, are you, are you well, able to hear I, this? Are you able to hear this? No, I, I, we're not hearing any, any audio. Well, I'm not hearing any audio, I'm sorry. Uh, but wh while... Yeah, so I, what I wanted you to hear was when the Apollo 8 astronauts were circling the moon for the first time, their comments were unanimous. This is not a very good place to live and work. This is a foreboding existence. This is their reaction. So that there are many people, myself included, that think the moon is useful for some things, but as far as going to Mars, it ain't for a lot of reasons. So I would, I would encourage you to just bifurcate or think about how you how you would transition what you're doing, which again is spectacular. There's no question. So, so uh, way ahead of you there. Oh, um, great, perfect. I, great. We were. I was invited to speak about virtual moon because this event of IAA oh, okay. is right. about the, about about the moon. But uh, I can tell you. Uh, this is uh, very avant-premier. We are also in the earliest stages of doing exactly the same thing as Virtual Moon for Mars, using the same technology and everything, the same approach uh, with a company who uh, is a uh, respected space architecture company and who have been designing uh, with the Onteco project a uh, hillside um, residential uh, place on, on Mars. And so we will be showing the entirety of Mars and that, et cetera, as well in due course. Great, I, I wanted to let you know, I, I sent you a reference, uh, a link to uh, a concept game called Go to Mars on my YouTube channel that Wonderful. basically lays out how you can use that technology to massively in, improve STEM education and get wild interest in this. And the, the necessary tool to do that is a game that uses your kind of uh, sophistication. So we, we can talk about it later because you have the links. Just see. Absolutely. That. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, so Ken, am I...
about to start? Yeah, it's, it's your turn. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Felipe. Thank you. Um, My pleasure. Have, uh, how much time do I have? Uh, Madhu talk is supposed to start at one uh, fifteen, but we got kind of 10 minute delay. So okay. uh, yeah, we'll do the best. <clears throat> All right, so let me let me do my best to run through this. There's a lot of stuff here. Uh, I'll try to get it as quickly as I can. So uh, let's see, share. Um, okay, how do I get my slideshow? Can everybody see this? Yes. Okay. Oops. Um, have to minimize this. Oh, there we go. Okay. So uh, this is a personal story uh, that I'm uh, going to share with you about how I ended up at Mission Control and how um, how the way I did that, there were lessons learned that it can benefit anybody uh, to change your life. Uh, this is this presentation was given uh, during the semi-centennial celebration in Houston and other places, different museums. So it's uh, very timely. So uh, let me start out. <clears throat> Oops, why am I starting out? Oh, there we go. I want to talk about luck. So uh, a word about luck. Everybody's heard what uh, Gene Kranz said. Uh, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Uh, but, but I have another way to describe luck. Uh, if you put yourself in a position at the right time and you're there, it's called good luck. If you're not there, it's called bad luck. So it's a matter of putting yourself in position. And we'll talk more about that later. So to start with, uh, I've, I've had an amazingly lucky uh, career and life. Uh, 400,000 people participated uh, in Apollo 11 as uh, engineers and scientists and, and contractors. And billions watched Apollo 11 on television but only a handful of people were at mission control and I happened to be one of them. So I like to think education, training and genes had all something to do with it, but luck did play a role. And uh, it's, it's like Forrest Gump said, life's like a box of chocolates. And that's gonna be the take home lesson of what you're about to hear. So pay close attention to how this happened because it doesn't matter how challenged, confused, despondent, lonely, bored you are, you can be lucky and learn like I did, that impossible is a word you should learn to use with the utmost of caution. Now, those aren't my words, those are Werner von Braun's words. Just keep that in mind. Impossible is a word you should learn to use with the utmost of caution. So with that as a backdrop, uh, um, NASA has a, a credo. Uh, it's called let your reach exceed your, your grasp. It's all about dreaming. So dream beyond what you think you can do. Um, and finding that dream is easier said than done. It's not, it's, it, you know, if, if you just kind of hope it's going to happen to you, that's one thing, but there's a roadmap. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to talk about really under all of this. And the roadmap I, I call the four Ps. Uh, they stand for passion, priority, persistence, and putting yourself out there. So we're gonna revisit this later, but the whole time I'm talking in the back of your mind, remember the four Ps. Okay, so uh, my dream was to explore. 
and it began early. So here's a picture of my mom six hours before I was born. And she's already holding me in, you know, get me out of here. That, that was it. That's how early this thing started, I guess. And then, uh, but I, I ran into trouble very early on. I wasn't a very good student. I, I uh, was a cut up, a misfit. I used to fill little tiny water guns with ink and squirt them all around. And I ended up uh, like this little kid with a dunce cap on and then writing on the, on the blackboard, I will be good. And then years later, when I was uh, planning how I would go to school and what would fund it, this happened. Now, this what you're looking at on the right image is a dress that was introduced uh, to the New York fashion market that came from Paris in uh, the mid-60s called a chemise. It had another name called a sack dress. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, what it has to do with is uh, my father his business was belts and buttons in the fashion business. Uh, he had a factory making belts and buttons for dresses. So you can imagine there's no belts and buttons on this dress. And when that happened, his business went completely south. And uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he took me aside one day and he said, look, whatever you do, I don't want you to have anything to do with the Shmata business. So for those who don't know, the Schmata business in Yiddish in New York City refers to the fashion industry, uh, the garment business, 7th Avenue, 40, 39th Street. Everybody pretty much knows uh, what I'm talking about, I hope, but it's, it, it's uh, affectionately called the Schmata business. So he say, do not have anything to do with Schmatas. So then, um, then my luck started to change. And uh, at the time, <clears throat> Um, I was working for a company called Beckton Dickinson, making needles, as you see some of the needles uh, that are blood taking devices. And I decided to apply to Columbia. Now my grades in high school were good, but they weren't fabulous. But it just so happens that the year that I applied, uh, Columbia decided to have lower mission standards. And that's probably what got me in. So uh, I left the needle business that was driving me nuts and I ended up going to, uh, to Columbia. So um, fortunately at, the, at that time when I finished Columbia, NASA was hiring like crazy for Project Apollo. And that's probably how I got in there, more luck, right? Um, so that led to my dream job, uh, designing spacesuits. Who knew? That, that, you know, out of all the things that I could have done, I didn't particularly ask to design spacesuits. I just said, what am I going to do? They accept you. And then you go around and do internships. And, and so it turns out that they needed people to design spacesuits. So the first thought, uh-oh, spacesuits. That's a schmata. My father would roll over in his grave if he knew that, right? And the second thought was, uh, wait a second. Um, you know, I went to a really good school. I took a bunch of courses. But... I never took anything like this. I don't know anything at all about this. I'm in trouble. They're very complicated and uh, I have to learn. So I, I embarked on learning a whole bunch of lessons. Uh, so here are some of the lessons that I learned early on. The first one is uh, without a spacesuit, you're dead. Very short time, nowhere, no gravity, simultaneous boiling and freezing, killer radiation, all that kind of stuff. This is, this is what it looks like.
all of your uh, fluids start to expand, blood vessels start to burst, the lungs start to burst, your body gets bigger, and boom, there you go. So um, the second lesson is, uh, unless you have a really good spacesuit, you're not going very far. So um, one thing you could do, uh, you could have a spacesuit that looks like this. It, it's kind of a robotic spacesuit. You're inside, uh, or, uh, or or Woody Allen has his own version of a spacesuit that might look like that. Uh, but reality-wise, uh, you could, if everything else gets in the way, you could tie yourself to an umbilical, to a rover. Uh, extremely limited, time limited, distance limited, but these are all things you could do uh, if, uh, if you don't design the proper spacesuit. So the <clears throat> next thing I learned is uh, you need to know uh, about spacesuits and you need to know how fast and how you can move in different spacesuits. So uh, when you design a spacesuit, you have to understand what's called the exploration envelope, how far you can go and safely get back to base. Uh, so to, to understand that, you need to understand, you need to know that spacesuits, all of them have two life support systems. They have a primary one that lasts eight hours and they have an emergency one that lasts 30 minutes in case everything goes wrong with the primary one. So just imagine that your fastest that you can walk in a spacesuit, you're limited to six kilometers an hour. Whether in, well, in an emergency, the most you could cover in 30 minutes is three kilometers. So that means that the furthest you could go out and have a monumental failure in your primary system and still get back home is, is three kilometers. But now let's just let's decide, let's just suppose that you can design a better spacesuit. And this spacesuit allows you to walk at 10 kilometers an hour. Well, in that same time, you could cover five kilometers. So your exploration envelope each day goes from three kilometers to five kilometers simply because you built a better spacesuit. Well, if the name of the game is exploration, you've spent billions and billions of dollars to get there. Uh, you want to be able to cover every ground and spend every minute. So clearly, uh, spacesuits are a very important uh, uh, thing to consider how you design them. Um, next uh, lesson that I learned was never put yourself in a position to run out of life support. Um, and, and that's critical. So when you look at life support in a spacesuit, a lot of it, probably 80% of all the life support consumables, battery, water, carbon dioxide removal, is dedicated to this, to removing metabolic heat. That's the heat generated by the person. And that depends on the task you're doing, right? So what does that mean? Uh, the, there's an analogy. Well, metabolic rates like uh, horsepower in a car and oxygen, water, and battery in a spacesuit are like gas. And your gas mileage depends on how you design the suit and how hard you work. So if you, if you work too hard, it's like putting your foot down on the accelerator and your gas mileage goes down, right? So uh, how, is this, how, is this, how does this relate to the mission uh, that you're on? So well, here's, here's how this is done. Uh, on this axis, you see EVA time and hours. That's how long you'll be out. And on this one, you see the cumulative amount of energy that you produce in a spacesuit. So we have, we have a red line, which is a nominal plan, which, which says that if you work at a certain rate, 
uh, over time, you're going to use up consumables according to this uh, red line. And it's going to cross the depletion rate right here. That's how much consumables you have in this particular case for water. And you come down here and you get 6.6 .6 hours of EVA time. Now, let's just suppose you have to work harder and you're up at the yellow line. So if you have to work harder at the yellow line, you will hit this, this consumable depletion line here, 5.2 hours. And on the other hand, if somehow you have a better spacesuit, you learn how to use it, you, you're good at controlling your, your fitter, you're, you're more fit, then you're in the green line and here you can go all the way to almost nine hours. So this is all uh, by way of showing you how important metabolic rate is in terms of EVA, and how long you can be out there doing your exploration. Uh, next lesson I learned is that if you cool a spacesuit down with air, it can be really bad for you. This is a lesson we learned during Gemini. And, and the reason for that is because spacesuits, lunar spacesuits, this is not true for Mars, that's a whole other talk. Uh, lunar and low Earth orbit spacesuits are designed like thermos bottles. So uh, they're, they're designed to completely eliminate exposure to very high temperatures when you face the sun, very low temperatures when you face the sun, plus or minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit. So, uh, but the whole time you're in the thermos bottle, you're adding heat, body heat, metabolic heat, and that causes the temperatures inside to rise. So you've got to get rid of them. And if you don't do that, your core temperature is going to go up and it's going to be like running in a sauna with your clothes on and in the case of a spacesuit cooled by air, you will begin to sweat. You can be blinded by your own sweat. It can lead to hypothermia. It can lead to worse. It could actually be fatal. So back in the 60s, uh, through relationships uh, with uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment in England, uh, NASA came up with the liquid cool garment. Now, the liquid cool garment is uh, a very simple, uh, idea which carries through to today. Instead of removing heat by air, it removes heat by circulating cold water in tubes against the skin. Uh, technically, it, you use conductive cooling instead of convective cooling or evaporative cooling, much, much more efficient. Uh, when you wear one of those things in exercise, it's like being in a cold shower with your clothes on, but not getting wet. Key point is this drastically reduces sweat and dehydration, it improves endurance and the ability to work, but it also, because of its nature, is actually a calorimeter. Uh, if you know the temperature of the water coming in and the flow rate and the temperature of water coming out, you can use it to measure metabolic rate, which we've just seen is really important. Uh, so right, uh, what you're looking at here is Buzz Aldrin's liquid cooled garment, uh, which I have hanging in my, uh, my house right now. And if you want to know why I have it hanging in my house, because I did, actually did my PhD thesis on this, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. But you might be asking, what has this all got to do with moon landing night? Because uh, this is about 1968. I'm really out of school just a couple of years. In fact, I'm only at NASA a year and a half. And Apollo 11 is, uh, is coming right up. I don't know much about spacesuits. But this whole topic really got me interested. It got me interested in temperature control in the human body and liquid cooling garments. So, you know, in the beginning, when we started talking about passion and the four Ps, uh, this became a passion. Uh, I didn't expect it. I didn't uh, anticipate anything like this. 
and it was a shmata after all, but there you go. All of a sudden, I'm really uh, passionate about this. So uh, I was given this job, one of my very first tasks, which was to build a human a model of the human body that took all of this into account. And it started off with a very simple equation. And that, that simple equation ended up changing my life, uh, which I'll, I'll elaborate on a bit later. Uh, the, the equation is, is uh, called the energy equation, derived also called the first law of thermodynamics. And this is kind of what it looks like. You have, a, it, it starts out with, uh, the simplest version is you have a, a lump uh, of, of uh, a lump of uh, tissue generating heat, and you have a way for that heat to get out. And so the idea is you generate heat, you remove heat, there's the equation over there, and the difference is heat that's stored in the body. And that heat stored in the body is critical because uh, the heat that's being produced is metabolic heat. Metabolic heat, the heat that's being stored is if it's excess. So the liquid cool garment actually enabled us to remove much more heat and balance these two, which kept you from going over the edge and being comfortable. So what I did originally, what I did with my first job is I took this two node model and I, uh, I added uh, a bunch more nodes. It went from two to four to eight to 16 and finally to 41 nodes. And then I started adding physiological parameters like blood flow and sweating and shivering. And finally, it was able to add a, a liquid cooling garment uh, model. So, I mean, that's what I'm doing with my time at, at NASA early on. I'm learning about how to do all this stuff. And here you see a pictorial uh, view of, of all of this. So um, this 41-node man enabled you to take a look at the human body, uh, the spacesuit that's around it and the environment that's around that and run simulations. It also enabled uh, one to uh, predict suit temperatures and body temperatures, uh, usage of life support, uh, life support remaining and astronaut thermal comfort. Now these were pretty important things, but I didn't know how that related to, to a moon landing night at all. I was just sitting there building a model. That's what I was told to do. So I'm building this model and that's when um, more luck came. And again, if you, if you push your passion hard enough and you're at the, again at the right place at the right time, this is what happened. Two worlds collided, the, the world of me working on 41 node man and the world of mission control. So unbeknownst to me at the time, Apollo mission control was responsible to ensure astronaut safety and comfort at all times. They were responsible for managing all EVAs in real time. They were responsible for measuring and monitoring oxygen, EKG, and metabolic rate, and life support consumables usage. And they were responsible for determining how hard you, they were, you had to work to do jobs, tasks on the lunar surface. And finally, they were responsible for providing algorithms for all of this. So, that's what they're doing. And then somebody, one of my bosses realized, hey, 41 node man is that kind of guidance algorithm. Why don't we go over to mission control, which is a different division and tell them what we got. So we went over there and they said, hey, you know what? We're well ahead of what you're doing. You're not in the same division. We, we have our own people doing this. 
but what we'll do is we'll have a little uh, we'll have a little contest, a competition, an open competition to see who is best at predicting how much life support is left at the end of a certain time. And to do that required a test, putting an astronaut in a thermal vacuum chamber, simulating the moon. Uh, in this case, the largest thermal vacuum chamber in the world called Cecil. And those who are watching may look upon this and, and, and recall that uh, this is exactly the same thermal vacuum chamber that the JWST was just put in prior to launch. The, the James Webb Telescope was tested for the first time in the environment that it would be used in, in this very chamber. But instead of putting uh, the JWST inside this chamber, we put astronauts in it. So here you go, you see tests first of, of test subjects, and we would have them walk on a treadmill and simulate the kind of activities they would do on the lunar surface. Uh, they would do steps up and down. All the while, they would be looking at a simulated sun up from above, and uh, the, the walls would be cooled down with liquid nitrogen to get very, very cold temperatures inside, as if you're looking away from the moon. And the vacuum would be uh, 10 to the minus 5 tor, the equivalent of a vacuum on, on the moon. So all except gravity was a pretty damn good simulation of what you were going to uh, See, and actually there were some simulations where we had uh, weight relief system to simulate the gravity at the same time. So you can see what's uh, the, the amount of detail it was going into running tests like this. So here you see some images of astronauts during the certification test walking into the thermal vacuum chamber with the door closed behind to actually do these tests. Quite an elaborate, dangerous set of tests takes over 100 people to run one of those tests. Uh, they're remarkable. Here you see uh, all the data uh, processing that was going on, everything, um, everything that you could measure and send out, we did measure to get the data uh, that was happening. So uh, what we were trying to do here is actually see what the computer programs that were in competition were measuring. And at the end of the day, when the test was over, we would actually take the spacesuit apart and see how much consumables were left versus how much were predicted to be left and see how that worked. So here looking at some of the data, uh, metabolic rate, body heat storage, I'm not gonna go through sweat versus time and you're looking at, at actual data versus simulation predictions, amount of metabolic rate versus cooling, all this kind of stuff. This is the, the big one, of course, consumable use. How much consumables are left versus time as time ticks down. That's what you really want to know when you do an EVA. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, well, didn't you have a gauge? Couldn't the gauge just tell you how much consumables were left? And the answer is no. First of all, you have four different kinds of consumables. Second of all, under those conditions, there was no gauge that could be produced that was accurate. The only thing we really had was a warning chime that went off with 30 minutes to go that that's all you had left. And you better get back, uh, you, be, you better find a safe haven or it's all over. So uh, it was really obviously important to understand consumable usage. Um, so anyway, we did all this test and after all the challenges and the struggles and all the competition, that simple equation I'd almost knew nothing about a year or two earlier, uh, actually won the competition and landed me on console. 
uh, again, a, you know, a luck, was it luck? Was it being in the right place at the right time? Was it passion? Was it perseverance? All these things come into play. Uh, so the job I got was to be a member of the MAT team, the metabolic assessment team at Mission Control. Uh, so what did that mean? That meant we would sit on console, we would use the program that would be actually a real-time program embedded in one of those consoles to calculate all of these things that needed calculating. But of course, there was a caveat. Uh, even though the job was to measure all this stuff, uh, none of it would have mattered uh, if Neil and Buzz did not first land safely and then step onto the lunar surface. And then everything, of course, had to work on top of that. So uh, there's still a long way to go just because you get on that team. Uh, and one last thing that we had to take into account also was um, radiant thermal energy from the lunar surface itself, especially from being in a crater or a depression, uh, would add heat to the spacesuit the same way metabolic rate would. And the only way to differentiate the two was to have a pretty good understanding of how much heat was coming in from the ambient. So to do that, as remarkable as it sounds, we had these three-dimensional maps. A very, these, these maps measure about two feet by two feet, some of them even bigger for every mission. Uh, we, we had these maps and you can see the, the relief and you could, you could see uh, the, what, what the pathway was gonna be here. You see one from Apollo 15, where you have the three different EVAs. And using thermal programs, we were able to determine a best guess as to how much heat was getting in from the lunar surface into the spacesuit, which we needed to know to back out the metabolic rate. So that's the last thing we needed to know. Uh, so of course, uh, you put yourself in my shoes. I'm, uh, I've written all the stuff. I've got a seat on a, at Mission Control with a MAT team, uh, but we know that we're not, we're not gonna be in business unless they go land on the moon and they get out the door. Now, so it's about, uh, it gets down to what is it at, at, uh, at this particular time, it's the second week in, uh, in July in 1969 and launch is about to take place. So what do I do? I get on an airplane and I fly to the Cape. I've got to see this uh, Apollo 11 liftoff. So, uh, Believe it or not, here's Apollo 11 lifting off. And right from the cover of Life magazine, I knew exactly where I was. Uh, this is as close as you can get. The countdown clock is there. And that's me right there because I was wearing a blue uh, polo shirt. So that's where I was. So uh, what an honor. What an unbelievable experience to be able to see this, right? So, of course, following the launch water, I do get on an airplane, run back, and wait. So now I've got to wait. Uh, wait to see if they actually land and um and if they land if they're going to go out so i want to read you an excerpt from uh from the book i was referring to earlier save the shuttle so um so i'll read this to you as apollo 11 approached the moon i hoped my little 41 node man might actually be used on the other hand there were two million moving parts in a spacecraft a lot could go wrong 41-node man would not start cranking numbers unless almost every one of those parts worked. Being the first attempt at a landing, that was a long shot. I, I recall going to bed at nine o'clock on the night of July 19th. 
landing, if it was to happen, would be 3.34 in the morning Houston time. So obviously, I should try and get some sleep. Uh, that was a joke. How are you going to sleep on the night you're about to land on the moon when you've got a job to do? I, I remember twisting and turning, foolishly attempting to doze off until the alarm clock mercilessly rang about 1.30. Uh, I should have been exhausted, but instead I had more energy than any time in memory. I dressed quickly. I drove the two miles along NASA Road 1 past the security checkpoint at the Manned Spacecraft Center in a cloud. And as I parked and made my way towards Building 30 at the Mission Control Center, I looked up in the sky and this is what I saw. So what you're looking at is, uh, is um, the moon uh, waxing one quarter full that night. And here you see the Terminator as you looked up in the sky and here was the sea of tranquility. <clears throat> I, knew where, I knew where the landing site <clears throat> was to be. And uh, if that doesn't get you you know, uh, really taking in a sense of history like that it doesn't get you excited. I don't, I don't know what will. <clears throat> so uh, the next thing that happened, um, I had to go into the building. So into the building, I've been given this badge. Uh, this is a badge unlike any other probably NASA's ever issued. This was a badge uh, that would get you into the Mission Control Center. Uh, and so I, I walked in through different levels of security to make my way to the console. And as I entered into my console, uh, you could have heard a pin drop uh, because uh, things were not going according to plan. Uh, you could cut the tension uh, with a knife. And so uh, many of you have heard this. I don't know if you've seen this high fidelity rendition of it, but I'll just take you through what we were seeing at the time uh, over here. You hear all these alarms going off.
Now, most of you heard a lot of these cuts, but some of the things that I just want to point uh, point out is uh, first Steve Bale saying we'll go for flight in the face of these alarms that are going off inside the inside the LEM. Lights are flashing, alarms are going off. Nobody but this guy knows it's okay to proceed. Uh, they were they were just uh, seconds away from abort. But Steve had had come across this in a simulation. He knew you could override and go through, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is. There's a line in there where uh, where uh, Neil says uh, pegged on horizontal velocity, and what that means is the, the landing site was not what it was supposed to be. It was covered in boulders. It was unacceptable. Uh, he grabbed the controls and starts flying horizontally to look for an alternative landing spot. And of course, the whole time he's doing this is using up fuel. So at the very end, when when you hear the guy saying 60 seconds, 30 seconds. Um, Actually, at the time of touchdown, there were 22 seconds of fuel left uh, in the descent engines uh, of the LEM. So that's how close all this came. Just, just imagine sitting on console in mission control, not knowing any of this or, or watching, watching it happen as it happened. It's uh, incredible. Only way to describe it. So the next thing uh, I start thinking, well, uh, What's going to happen next? So I want to point out my position. So, um, so here's the lunar module. It's going to be transmitting to the deep space network. Uh, here's a, a, a pictorial of uh, Neil and Buzz descending the spacecraft. Uh, the spacesuit is going to be sending back all the data uh, real time. And that data is going to go across the deep, deep space network tracking stations. It's going to come into the mission control center. It's going to go into what we then call the real-time computer complex, RTCC, run, by the way, by punch cards, right? My program right here, 41-node man, the embodiment of it was punch cards built into this console. And so here's me looking at the console. So the next question is, um, what's going to happen next? And so uh, six hours and 22 minutes after landing, as Neil suited up in the airlock preparing to descend, the moment of truth was at hand. Would the data come back? Would the programming work? Would the answers make sense? Uh, it just was uh, you know, tinder hooks, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, so I want to show you the first start of the start of that. As uh, Neil and Buzz go down the ladder, uh, this is something that the spacesuit designers and all of us, we had our hearts in our mouth because this was not supposed to happen. Uh, let me show you. Thank you. 
Now, I, I want to call your attention to the fact that this unplanned uh, testing the limits of the spacesuit had everybody uh, worried, especially the spacesuit designers. All they really wanted was for these guys to come out, go down the ladder, pick up some rocks, show everything worked, and get back in the door. This kind of thing, where you're doing hops and jumps and turns, and you know, very first time out the door, was very concerning. Uh, so, um, so at, while this is all going on, I'm sitting on console waiting, 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 and then all of a sudden, there, there's a de depiction with million of parts, parts start working. It's showing me look over console, looking at the data, and then uh, all of a sudden, the EKG starts. So here you see uh, uh, Neil Armstrong's EKG and Buzz Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin's EKG. So that's the heart rate. Here you see their respiration rates. I got them to sign this because this was happening right on my console. So I could actually cut the strip chart page off right here and uh, bring it to them later during debriefs and have them sign it. Uh, following that, this is what the console looked like. This is actually a, a picture that I took showing the data as it's, as it's being populated uh, with heart rate, metabolic rate by oxygen, metabolic rate by liquid cooling, metabolic rate by heart rate. Here's the chart I showed you earlier, the consumables usage rate. This is a uh, total cumulative metabolic rate uh, predicted versus actual. In this case, it's actually higher for the beginning. Here's handwritten notes. This, we took this data every six minutes and reported it uh, to the EVA console in mission control and to the flight surgeon. So that, that's what was done. Here's a pictorial of what the algorithm was looking at as it was, uh, as it was making these calculations. So uh, while this was going on, um, 41 node man was actually determining if the astronauts were going to get into a situation where they would not be cooled enough, where they would not have enough cooling because they forgot to turn their cooling on high enough to get rid of all of, of the heat that they're producing. In, in which case you would get into all the situations I mentioned earlier, dangerous hyperthermia situations. But we, having this tool at hand enable us to know that. So I'm going to show you an actual instance of how this worked. This is a real time. That First cable. First cable. Watch the cable. Yeah, you all right? Yep. Yeah. Plenty of you. Good. You're going to show Jack and Max cooling at an appropriate time. Yeah, I might remind him. Okay, LSG is going on. Okay, I'll do that. If it's not, that no, I think he deliberately did that. Uh, LMP, I mean, Kelsey. Yes, my He called. Bob, uh, I'm not doing yeah, too badly on keeping things clean. So, what you're hearing all is this back talk that uh, this is actually from, uh, uh, let's see, Apollo 15, or uh, you can see the imagery is a lot better. So, we didn't have to, we didn't have to worry about this in Apollo 11, which was very short. But we, we had the ability to actually know when they were in the wrong position and, and tell them to change their cooling. All this happened that you saw because it was clear from 41 node man that they were in the wrong position. They were either getting too hot or too cold. And we went through the, uh, the flight director 
and he went through the EVA. You, you heard all the call outs and the people in the back chat are doing this. So uh, that's that was the, the beauty of this. Thanks. Uh, and then after it was all done, uh, there's a la another heart stopping moment. Uh, we're all in mission control. And as you see, I, I'm not going to give you any audio here because it's a pretty self-explanatory. Uh, they're getting back in the LEM. And we have these images that we could actually see on console. So, so sitting there in that environment, one terrifying moment after another, uh, it just was, you know, but, but of course you didn't have time to think about that. You had a job to do. So this is, this is what everybody was doing. I had, I had one job. There were many, many people involved in many different things, just like me. Uh, finally, we came, we had splashdown. Uh, and that led to one of the biggest celebrations uh, imaginable, as you can see from this image that was taken inside the uh, Moker. And uh, talk about parties. Uh, those are some of the biggest parties along NASA Road 1. Uh, you, you know, it's hard to, hard, hard to describe. Uh, people were jumping in swimming pools. People were just beeping their horns. They were all over the place. Just, just amazing. Um, some more parade afterwards. So, um, and <clears throat> following the uh, the recovery, of course, the astronauts were put into the uh, MQ, MQF, the mobile quarantine facility. And there you see uh, <clears throat> Neil and Buzz, and that was my roommate, John Hirosaki. He was his job was to be chief cook and bottle washer and take care of them, and make their meals. And Mike uh, Collins is in the background. You, know, you can't see him. So they were they were quarantined on the on the USS Hornet after they were picked up uh, inside this this uh, mobile airstream trailer. Then they were brought back to Houston, where they were quarantined again in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. And here's the image that I talked about earlier. Uh, these are all the people that were put into quarantine. There's Neil and Mike and Buzz. That's John Hirosaki. Uh, flight surgeon Bill Carpentier. I know all these people. So for two weeks. They were in lockdown, uh, and uh, I could give a whole talk about this, but basically the building was kept at a lower pressure than the ambient, because if there were any pathogens, uh, they wouldn't go out. It would it, Stuff could come in, they could get colds, they could get sick from the outside air, but keeping everything on a, a lower pressure inside prevented any pathogens from going out, and this was sustained for two weeks. Uh, so that, that's what happened then. And then, uh, then of course, following uh, Apollo 11, uh, we did this again. We did this a total of six times and you see all the landing spots. So if anybody ever comes up to me or any, anyone else involved and say the whole thing was fake, the short answer is, okay, you wanna fake it once, you're gonna fake it six times. You're gonna go to all that trouble to do this six separate times, uh, come on. Uh, there's a lot of other reasons you can use to prove why this wasn't a fake, but I won't get into that. Um, during all these missions, there were instances where life support became of concern. 
Uh, here you see, in, in terms of removing a carbon dioxide, uh, on Apollo 16, we finished the EVA with only 2% left. All of these in yellow were instances where life support consumables were under 10%. So uh, we had a total of 16 incidences by the time they got back in the lunar module of 10% uh, consumables, life support remaining, 11 of eight, three of five, and one of two. But because we had so many people working on it with so many algorithms like 41 node man, we were able to handle it. And, uh, and not only were we able to handle it, we were able to learn from it to the point where we could use uh, expert systems and artificial intelligence to basically go in the direction of replacing mission control. So I'd like to show you the last job I was doing at uh, JSC uh, before I started designing Mars spacesuits uh, with planetary protect, which is what I'm doing now. This is a, uh, a test of a new kind of spacesuit that NASA was developing, a precursor to the Artemis spacesuit, but a lot of the technology is gonna be embedded in Artemis. This is Chris Cassidy, who had five shuttle flights taking it through its ringer. And what you're gonna hear is uh, a software system called Violet that we use to design, learning everything we learned. Violet stands for, um, let me see, what does it stand for? <laughs> um, voice operated integration of life support tracking. So here's, here's how it works. Instead of a mission control, all that's in the space. So you get a you get a sense of what it takes to run one of these tests. Just a lot of people coming together in a, in a team, and uh, you'll never have a, a more fulfilling experience in your life than being part of a of a team. A team like this, uh, yeah, that's pretty elaborate. But any team that works towards a common goal that expresses your passion is basically the same thing. So um, as time went on, it, my my whole life unfolded uh, from this point. And uh, I did stuff like use all this for a PhD thesis. And I ended up uh, building, helping to build a space shuttle, a tile team of space shuttle. Ended up on the Johnny Carson show, uh, introducing the public to the space shuttle right before its flight with models and descriptions. And then uh, using some of this technology to design high-tech sportswear. And later on, I, I came back to JSC as a life science manager for the human experiments on ISS and shuttle. And uh, this is one I'm particularly proud of. After Challenger, 
I had a class of uh, 400 students and we were talking about uh, all, all things space when the Challenger explosion happened and the, 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 team, the students decided to do this. It seems real down to the last switch, even to former astronaut Lauren Acton, who took his first tour of the model tonight. Unbelievable. And I think it was done for practically nothing. You know, and these things usually cost millions of dollars. It's truly impressive. Sitting high atop the Berkeley Hills behind the Hall of Science, it's a memorial to the seven Challenger astronauts. This is a fantastic way to fulfill the mission of that flight. It was teaching children about the wonders of science, and that's what we want, and that's what we think it can do. A quiet ceremony today featured one of Christy McAuliffe's best friends from high school. I mourn the loss of my... I could go on and on about that, but I mean, it's funny how... Once you're on this path, all these things happen. And you know, ask yourself why they're happening. And the answer is perseverance and putting yourself in a position to be at the right place at the right time. And so that's, that's how I've kind of formulated this four Ps thing. It's all a matter of you know, passion, prioritizing, perseverance, putting yourself out there. And that's led to all kinds of things like honoring Neil and Buzz in a ceremony, writing books about these experiences, kind of amazing. And uh, that's led right up to, to today, uh, where we're at, we've actually just finished testing and proving the concept of a, a radically different spacesuit for Mars that uses the Mars atmosphere to pressurize the torso and oxygen to pressurize the helmet. And we just uh, got back from the Mars summit, uh, where we demonstrated that this actually did that job. We had CO2 sensors, we pressurized the suit, we showed you could have uh, absolutely normal PCO2 in the helmet, and, uh, and the, the torso would be pressurized to two PSI, 100% CO2, and it was completely separated. A lot of other reasons to do this. You'll stop a puncture from killing you if it's in the torso. Uh, you don't have to use heavy heavy fans and pumps and heat exchangers, which enables you to get this suit down from a 300-pound Artemis suit down to about a 120-pound uh, Mars EMU suit, which if you think about the gravity difference between 38% gravity on Mars and 16% on the moon, you cannot use an Artemis suit in any way, shape, or form. Uh, from Mars, you can't even evolve it. So you needed something completely radically different. So all these things are, uh, are began with this dream, simple dream, passion, and then following uh, the lesson learned is dream high, let the reach exceed your grasp. Remember these, these passion, priority, persistence, and putting yourself out there. And embrace failure. That's the most important thing. Failure is a way of learning. And, uh, and, and don't get upset if you fail. That's, all, that's what perseverance is all about. Uh, last thing I wanna show you is how, uh, how you might do this for yourself. Um, start with a clean sheet of paper. And the first step, uh, list your passions. So here, here's somebody who listed their passions. They wanted to be an actress. They loved cats, they loved food. They had an idea about going to school and becoming a doctor. Uh, they also would love would have loved to be a Formula One driver, and uh, possibly they could have been a therapist. And at the top of the list, maybe they'd like to be a billionaire or a president. So those those are the any of us sitting down. If if I told you list ten passions and don't even think about the restrictions, just what comes into your head. If you could do anything, what would it be? And then list them. 
And then the next step is the prioritization step. What happens in the four P's plan is you look at each of these and you look at them from how much time is needed, how much skill is needed, how much it's gonna cost you. And you give each one a number, five being the most difficult or the hardest and one being the least. So if you look at this in this particular person, to be an actress would have required a lot of time, a lot of skill, it wouldn't have cost that much. And these things add up to like 13. Uh, funny enough, uh, cats, not that much, well, some time would be needed for cats. Now I'll get into the cats and how that works to, to the, the ultimate career of this person. But you didn't need a great deal of skill level. You didn't need a great number of uh, dollars to, to be a cat trainer or a cat watcher. And that leads to nine. And the same thing with all these things, right? You go down the list and when it's all done and you add up the scores, this is what the scores look like, right? And now you reorder them, reorder or prioritize them. So this particular person, cats, funny enough, were one. Food was two, therapist was three, getting a PhD or an MD was four, acting five, billionaire six, five, actually being a president was easy to becoming a, than becoming a billionaire or a Formula One driver, I could talk about that. So this, finally, once you pick it, whatever it is in this particular case, it was cats. Uh, the next step is perseverance, embracing failure. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do this. And uh, by way of uh, comparison, Tom Clancy had 158 rejections in the hunt for Red October. So however many times you've been rejected, if you go down this path, you cannot listen to that. And finally, you must put yourself out there when the right time happens. You can't just go home at the end of the day. Oh, I'll be there tomorrow or next week. That's the most important part. After everything is done, you must put yourself out there. So last thing I want to show you is uh, this person who filled out this chart and what she ended up doing. So this is a person who uh, got a van, went to uh, shelters, picked up a bunch of cats, found three women to help her, and ended up uh, doing this, going around the country doing this. Right, you, you, you all get the idea. So uh, can you imagine this? How did these people end up giving shows all across the country doing something like this? It's like uh, remarkable. I, you know, when, when I saw this, I just had to get them to fill out that table. So um, a lot of stuff obviously here. The last thing I wanna leave you with is one of the most important things you can possibly do is be a part of something bigger than yourself and aspire to be part of a team. 
So uh, Neil made this reference because uh, this is what he said as he was climbing up the ladder later on, all was ready, everything had been done, the time had come. As we ascended in the elevator to the top, we knew that hundreds of thousands had given their best to give us this chance. Now it was our time to give our best. Uh, so there you go. That's a lot, uh, a lot of stuff. I'm happy to answer questions if people have them. And uh, let me get back to the main screen. Thank you, Dr. Kastnitz. These are all amazing. All the Apollo Control Center and uh, inspiration and, uh, and how people can do with, with the four Ps. Uh, while waiting for, for the questions, Felipe say he's, he really want to get your feedback on the uh, VR moon landing. So it's okay to show his uh, moon landing virtual reality to you? Oh, of course, sure. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Madhu, I know you are here, but Madhu, you might want to also go watch this and give some feedback. So go ahead, Felipe. <laughs> and Madhu, yeah, okay. I saw your camera. Oh, good. Yeah, watch this camera. This simulation, I mean, this VR, and see if it any feedback. Yeah, Philippe, you might want to say something. Yeah, Professor Matu Sangabinu is also here. So you can hear from uh, Dr. Kastnitz and Professor Sangabelu. Uh, feedback for your uh, uh, virtual reality demo. Uh, well, you know, it would be, uh, is it, is there more to it or is this it? Or is it gonna be some more? I think he's trying to get this started. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I had muted my microphone. So uh, what you're seeing here is um, I already uh, restarted the landing approach. And so about a finger's width from the, to the left of the sun, you will start seeing the plume of the lunar lander uh, as a very faint blotch, which will grow bigger. So this is a simulation of uh, for experiencing it in virtual reality. So this works in a Quest VR headset. You can stand very, very close to the uh, place where the astronauts um, landed on the moon. So right now we are here looking around on the still pristine uh, tranquility, uh, Mare Tranquillitatis uh, base. And you see the, the plume here. So 
uh, they are approaching. If I click on this button in the top left corner, you will hear the chatter between the astronauts, etc. But then it will be hard for me to talk over that. But uh, this is what you would have seen, Lawrence, if you were on the moon at that famous uh, historic uh, Apollo landing. So I'll manage the camera, but I'm going to switch on the audio for the final moments of approach and landing. Okay. Here we go. my position a bit to the left. Notice that the sun is in their back. So we we see the lunar lander in uh, in shadow. But here we go for the final touchdown. That's it. So, so that's it. Uh, all of this is astronomically correct. The sun is in the right position. The terrain is exactly the terrain with the craters, etc., of uh, Tranquility Base, and uh, the timing is correct, etc. You you see that they, you know, you you hear and you see that they are just above this uh, big area with boulders and a crater that was not suitable for landing, and then uh, it's. Um, it's, it's tricky to set this up in VR because the imagery, it's, it's hard to see the lunar lander initially because it's counter lit by the sun, which is in the back. So um, we, would also, we could also have put the camera here, but then you wouldn't see, but then you would see it only when it uh, is close to the landing, unless we go very far and then it's not so interesting. So. The, the whole point of this, this is actually still work in progress. We're still polishing this, but the whole idea is to experience this historic moment while standing on the moon. Uh, imagine that you had a, a spacesuit and that you were standing on the rim of this little crater here, an actual crater at Tranquility Base, and that you were, you literally saw this historic event unfold before your eyes. So what do you think, Lawrence? Well, I've, uh... 
I fast forwarded to the same image in real time. If I can share, <clears throat> you might have to get off of me to share the screen. Okay. I'm, I stopped sharing. Hold on a second. Let me go to, uh, all right, see how to do that. So uh, while you do that, hold on, I've got it. The, uh, the eagle-eyed among you uh, will have noticed that we included in the simulation even the folding of those uh, test probes below <laughs> the legs yeah. as they touched and folded and buckled under uh, while landing. Go ahead, Lawrence. Okay, so here's here's the image that we're talking about. Yep. And you can look at the tree. This is very bad TV image because that's all we had at the time, obviously, unless you get to go to the pictures, which were much. Uh, well, I could I could move this forward and let's see if I have any better. No, I don't. <clears throat> so you you can see what the lighting looks like, and uh, you can see. Yep. Buzz and Neil over here, and you can see what the terrain looks like and how the limb is uh, oriented in the sun. In the flag. So yeah. it's uh, it nice to have these two side by side. Absolutely. Uh, so, so far, uh, we basically have the, the entire landing, landing approach and landing sequence uh, timed to uh, be shown and experienced together with the capsule communications. And, uh, but we may also have an inset where we show uh, some video um, uh, of, you know, the view. Um, actually, they did, I don't think, do they have uh, uh, footage uh, looking down at this? Yeah, I think they do, uh, picking up some dust, etc. the view from one of the windows um, of, the, uh, of the lander. So... <clears throat> But the, the whole idea here was to have this, uh, to witness as a kind of an eyewitness, this experience from the surface of the moon, to be there, uh, to relive that experience, uh, standing on the surface of the moon and watching uh, humans land there first as if you were a, a lunar inhabitant or an alien or a fly on the wall. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's great. It's, uh, it's being able to, sit down there and watch it come in as if you're standing there it's great so uh a lot of work a lot of uh, a lot of kudos to you and your team uh you just need to move on to mars <laughs> yes absolutely well we'll you know we will be there when the first uh human landing on mars happens and we'll be cre recreating that in uh, loving detail in vr in the same fashion I did have a question though. Is that supposed to be the sun? Yes, that's the, the sun up there. So why does it look so small? Um, uh, it's astronomically correct. And so the we could make it much brighter, uh, which would make it appear bigger. But this is uh, the correct size as seen from the lunar surface. I don't know. It's still 93 million miles away, more or less. And you know how it looks from here. So it seems to me it looks uh, smaller than it really is, is. Is But anyway. I, I think, Larry, I think uh, yeah, Philip is right. Uh, the, the solar disk and the lunar disk, as you know, when, <laughs> when we look at it uh, uh, in the sky, you appreciate how tiny they are. 
<laughs> um, well, I understand the atmosphere, our atmosphere magnifies it to a degree, but it's just very hard to believe that the actual size without so atmospheric small. magnification is that small. That actually looks smaller than the view of the sun from Mars, which I've seen from, uh, you know, from all the rovers. But anyway, it is what it is. You know, and I think, uh, uh, Philip, uh, uh, I think you, you know that the approach angle was selected so that we have the um, appropriate um, amount of shadow so that you can have um, visual flight rules. Right. <laughs> and it's yes. critical, it's critical, this angle of uh, approach, uh, because I think it's going to play havoc for us uh, um, thinking about uh, um, the polar landing. And uh, <laughs> we have brought this up in our papers in the past. And uh, I know some of you will say, oh no, we're going to fly by uh, instrumental flight rules and so on. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to face the music uh, from the pilot uh, when the time comes. But it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, visualization. I agree with uh, Larry that uh, dust, uh, showing the dust would be an interesting thing to see how, how the dust uh, uh, flies out as uh, the lander approaches uh, the... Uh, Actually, uh, we are showing that. So I, I restarted the, the simulator yeah. and um, I cannot uh, make it go faster, but... Uh, I, uh, in a few, it, it, we only show the last couple minutes um, of the approach and landing. And um, again, I, I will not switch on the, the audio yet because then uh, it will be a challenge to, to talk over it. But um, you will, I, I will put you in a different spot uh, on this, this time. So you see, I can, I can move around on the lunar surface uh, in rapidly uh, to change my my position vis-a-vis -vis the approaching uh, eagle, yeah. Uh, and um, but you will see that we have actually simulated the dust kicking up uh, from uh, during the landing, and the the idea is that you will experience this. Uh, it already works in a Quest headset, and so we uh, we are going to simulate the striking of small little pieces of dust of regolith on your visor, etc. So that you, you, of course, there's no sound in space, but you can still hit feel uh, uh, the impact of that uh, spray of dust on your spacesuit and especially on your visor. And so that's that's how we uh, make it make the experience multisensorial, so that it's not just hearing the audio of the astronauts. So do you already see the little uh, splotch here? That's the exhaust plume. Yeah, we can see that. <coughs> so we can see that. And you know, I'm thinking, I'm, going, I'm thinking if you if you have the angle, if you have the angle um, uh, from the sun looking towards the the lander, you may yeah. see the uh, see the dust uh, ejector flying better because of the uh, sun angle shining I'll on go, the dust. I'll go more to the side this time. Uh, so as we, we, we see now, I'll switch on the audio. So here, 
he, he will notice this crater and, and fly over it and so as not to land there. See, I'm moving laterally to it now. Now it's going to. And now I'm mo moving with it as it lands. Now it's almost hovering with very, very little, very little forward distance. Watch the, watch the dust. Believe me, this is great, uh, but we, we need to move on to Professor's pr presentation. Oh, I think it's I think it's a wonderful a wonderful animation, uh, Philip. And uh, uh, did you work with Manny on this, uh, whom I have known a long time? Manny's yes. online. This oh. Manny is here, and this is part of the Virtual Moon project. Manny oh, yeah. Manny financed this uh, Apollo Eleven VR landing yeah. experience. <laughs> I've, Manny, I've, seen, I've seen the progress over the years and uh, uh, hats off to you for continuing this, uh, both of yeah. you. Many raise his hand. Uh, Madhu, you're, you're welcome oh, to post for your slide. Okay, let me bring yeah, sorry. my slides. Felipe, yeah. this is wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Felipe. So Manny, do you want to say something? Well, well anyway, if he doesn't say anything, Professor, go ahead. Okay, uh, I need uh, I need uh, permission to share. Well, you 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 have the you have the capability to share. Uh, no one prevent you. That I can tell. Okay. <clears throat> well, many if you if you want to say a few words. 
Yes, uh, Dr. Kuznets, thanks very much for a, for a very interesting presentation. I enjoyed the technical aspects as much as the inspirational aspects of it. We are, we're also aiming for the same thing, you know, technical fidelity, but also to inspire a lot of people. Um, one of the things that uh, Philip didn't get to mention is that all the objects on the moon we're going to generate digital twins of. So I would like to continue a conversation with you to get all the details so we could build eventually down the road a digital twin of, of your spacesuit design that will, um, you know, very, uh, very accurately with very high fidelity um, simulate the, the behavior, the, the behavior of all the systems that are working together to make the spacesuit work. Um. <clears throat> I can help you a lot just by referring you to our website. Pretty easy to remember. Uh, planetaryprotech.com, one word. Uh, planetaryprotech, P-R-O-T-E-C-H. So it's planetaryprotech.com. Thank you. We'll, we'll definitely uh, follow up on that. Uh, the other thing you could do is uh, you could go to the uh, Humans to Mars Summit that was held in Washington, D.C. Get on their website. And um, they have all of the presentations recorded, <clears throat> and you'll find uh, you'll find the surprise reveal where we actually brought the uh, suit on stage, pressurized with carbon dioxide, uh, with uh, CO2 sensors in front of the audience, uh, so you'll get a, a close up and personal look at it, um, and that might help you too. And you just have to find the place where they have the. The, uh, recordings of that conference. I also have a question for you on the, I've read about some uh, designs where um, instead of um, pressurized gas, they use uh, pressure garments for the, you know, to, to create pressure <laughs> the body of the astronaut. Is that, is that a, a feasible approach at all? Uh, David Newman is one of my closest friends. I've known her forever. She's a very smart lady. She was a former associate administrator at NASA. She's at MIT. She's brilliant. Uh, the bio suit is her baby. Uh, NASA has never baselined it um, in, in any, in any, and by the way, the design dates back to the 1960s, uh, where, the, where uh, God forgetting his name, the guy who wrote the, the, red, the famous red book, bio, Paul Webb, Biosynodics Data Book. He actually pioneered the first uh, mechanical counterpressure suit. There are a lot of issues to overcome. I mean, a lot. The donning and the doffing issue, the fact that you cannot provide an even pressure in places like in between the fingers and in between the toes, uh, where if you don't supply an even pressure, you're going to have fluid migration, capillary bursting, discomfort. It, this is a really difficult problem. And I don't think it, it'll be. Uh, solved by the time we get to Mars. As, as far as, you know, I've been working on the Mars spacesuit now for 27 years. Never really built one uh, to test until about uh, less than a year ago. And we've run it, we've run it through the ringer. We've got like 22 hours of testing on it. And it is such a simple design, basically re re replacing big tanks and, and oxygen with an atmosphere that's outside an infinite source that you just blow in and blow out and it takes all your metabolic heat with you and more to the point, the most 
powerful point of this design is that it's conducive to, to uh, uh, embodying uh, viral filters at the inlet and the outlet and conforming to the 1967 Outer Space Planetary Protection Treaty, which no spacesuit has ever done. And, and the Artemis suit will not do it either. It's a clear violation of Article 11. And the, and the closer we get to human missions, I guarantee you that the planetary protection world is going to come down harder and harder. Uh, you see what goes into sending perseverance and curiosity uh, to Mars. Basically, it's a gigantic clean room. Everybody's wearing clean room suits, the sterilization. Uh, now you've got space. Uh, Dr. Kuznets. Yeah. I think we are very late. Uh, right, anyway, so I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good point. Yeah, we'll, we'll arrange another it's, event it, you know, for you. It, you know, spacesuits are very important. Uh, uh, and uh, Larry is, uh, is definitely saying some of the things all of us are scared to hear. And uh, Ken, maybe we should have a special... Uh, a special um, uh, dedicated day for spacesuits. And I think, I think yeah. we, we'll, we'll do that. Okay, good. So- uh, I'm happy to do that. Bless you, Lapa. Can you hear people sneezing? Okay, good. Um, uh, hello, everybody. I'm, I was just looking over uh, the folks here and I know a few of them. And again, I want to remind you, uh, Larry and I go, <laughs> as long as I've been um, working in this field. And uh, um, it's, it's a pleasure to hear. I heard the last part of Larry's talk when I just dialed in. And uh, um, Larry is an inspiration to all of us. And um, uh, to the point that it makes you do dangerous things, but that's, that's how it is. I mean, that's, how, that's what teachers do. Uh, but with that, let me uh, share um, some slides. Um, uh, uh, Neil's day is special to AIAA, and thanks to Ken, uh, who is adamant that uh, uh, Neil is American and the moon landing is American, but the world has moved on. So uh, the way... Uh, USG connects to the moon is through Neil Armstrong. He was in the class doing his aerospace engineering work at USC when he was assigned to the Apollo uh, 11 mission. Of course, Buzz Aldrin, uh, the pilot on, on that landing, uh, is a champion and a very close uh, friend of our studio. He comes in un and unannounced to the class because if he doesn't, he will have to charge an honorarium, uh, which my studio or my university may not be able to afford. But please visit our studio when you get a chance. I'll let, um, I can have uh, the URL, can take a look at the things we do. This is uh, his thesis that ended up as a seminar. And uh, here you see uh, Neil Armstrong suited in the Gemini uh, G2 suit, which is my favorite uh, design for a spacesuit. Of course, you could, he couldn't have done the lunar uh, mission uh, with this suit, but there was a time 
when uh, when uh, space people were considered uh, uh, superhumans. <laughs> and uh, these are the beginnings of uh, our spacesuit uh, technologies. We have far exceeded all this uh, going to the moon. And as Larry mentioned, <laughs> it's not going to be easy, particularly for the planetary protection people uh, to convince them uh, that we can do things on, on Mars. Anyway, we have the biggest, baddest um, sculpture of Neil um, in, our, on a, uh, in our courtyard near my classroom. And uh, every time uh, we get guests, uh, classes are usually in the evening because my students, most of them work in the industry, in the defense uh, arena and so on. So uh, we pose whenever we have guests. And you see Neelita is a very beautiful sculpture. Uh, USC has an Astro program. Uh, it's kind of new, but we are growing. And uh, you see that it's uh, here you, we depict uh, Kurnus, but it's all over the world now. And I get students uh, um, in the wee hours of the night, the other side of the world, tuning into our classes. That is how it's progressing. And, uh, and now we have a sizable number of students, both in, both in the undergraduate and the graduate program and the doctoral program. So what is my class? My class, the studio is nested in this program. It's just three units, three units. And the focus is on purely unbridled imagination and creativity. Unbridled, that's a term you underline, unbridled. It comes to us from what we are taught in the School of Architecture over five years. It takes five years for a concept architect to understand how to perceive and project a concept. Um, this comes um, as news to engineering students. So what we've tried to do, what we've tried to do is push the idea that conception, the idea, the rationale, and the thinking behind a story is far more important than any of the science or the technologies involved. If you can dream it, you can do it. So originality is focused in the classroom. And we spent 15 weeks thinking about what to do and how to do it in a very preliminary way. So um, in academia, there is a rule. We don't pay attention the policies and the politics of anybody or anything, we have what you call academic freedom. And that combined with creativity and imagination is the reason for my class. Again, it, all the things we do are independent of NASA wishes and uh, White House um, mandates and industry too. So my class attracts a lot of people. Students come from all over the world. And usually, in fact, almost all the time, we have three or four times more um, reviewers and guests in the classroom than our students. Because 
we are really showing what we can imagine. So in the fall, in the fall I teach engineering and because my degrees are in both architecture and engineering, in the spring, I teach in the architecture school. This is where I get the real arrows in my opinion because architects are down to earth people because their bread and butter depends on concepts and the concepts have to win um, approval from the client so that they can really build. It's their bread and butter. So conception, imagination and creativity is a core function of an architect. You look at this the slide here, you'll see, you'll see that our students come from all over the world. They're not American. American as in born and raised here. Some are, but universities like ours reflect the possibility that the whole world cherishes imagination and creativity. Look at these pictures from that corner on, French, American, Italian, German, Turk, Hindu, Madhu, and another Hindu, China, uh, Hong Kong, India. You've got, you've got people from all over the world. And of course, you know that we have Russians in our uh, faculty. And what do these architects think? They're worried about our world, the future of our world. They know that planets will be occupied by people, but at what cost and for what reason? And they, they want to know what you can do for the future of city dwellers. I think it's uh, Churchill who mentioned that architects design our buildings thereafter buildings design what we do. And it's a very important thing to think about. So architects have a very interesting view on reality, credibility, culpability, tangibility. And uh, so it's important to pay attention to that. So they wanna know what is all the space architecture going to the moon and so on? What does it hold for humanity as a whole? What is, a, is there a philosophy of what would you call a space-faring civilization? That is where space architecture plays a role. How does humanity live in other places of the universe? So we wrote a book. It's in its second edition. Third edition has taken a long time. And uh, this is our class textbook. If you get a chance, Go on Amazon, take a look at this book. And of course, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the foreword was written by the champion. He comes to class and once in a while he signs a few of our books for us. And uh, uh, this is our uh, site. Um, I began teaching this uh, course in 1992. So this fall will be the third opening of the third decade. And uh, if you look, we have paid attention to the moon more than Mars, though you will see that the turn of the century, we did look at the exploration of Mars. And I think 
the report is on on um, Google. You can pull it up. But we paid more attention to the moon because because mission designers are a different group from visioneers, concept creators. <laughs> when you talk to a mission designer, the first thing in the in foremost in their minds is, will I keep my crew safe? Everything else, science, technology, arts, acts, stunts, all don't matter to them. Uh, if you get a chance, take a look at Gene Kranz's talk to the Smithsonian Institute. I think it was last year. Yellen Stofan introduced him and he gave us a talk on uh, the, the rules of engagement for a mission manager. And you'll start to appreciate how much they care for the crew. So anyway, um, back to this. Uh, so we've been following the moon because it's more interest, more real. It is more close to what, because we've done it. We did it 50 years ago, 50 some years ago. So if you come down to the, the last three or four, that is 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021 presentations are very close to the uh, US space policy of today. And what you see here, what I'm going to show you is one idea that came about in what we call the CHASE, Commercial Human Space Flight Expeditions um, Team Project. Uh, it happened in the fall last year. And uh, that is what was on the flyer. Here it is. So um, again, it is about things that already are not what we can project later on and so on. And that is partly fiction. This is happening now. Now, as in some of these payloads are in orbit. So take a look. So we know that right now, as we are talking, there are two or three vehicles that are crew rated that will take you to the station, that will bring you back safely from orbit. And they include the Dragon um, you know, spacecraft designed by SpaceX. And as soon, the Orion, that is, uh, that is uh, showing signs going up there. Of course, <laughs> uh, we did not want to get into the Russian uh, vehicles. Uh, but I am of the opinion we should have them too. In terms of the launchers, we have the Falcon 9, which is quite a capable vehicle. <laughs> it is certified at three times the safety of the shuttle. We got the Ariane, which can do payloads. And maybe in the coming, by the end of the year, we may have the SLS. We have to wait and see. Anyhow, in orbit are things like the Tedris and the um, uh, lunar communication uh, relays uh, satellite. And, uh, 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 and of course, Starlink is already operational. And these are all very important pieces of a giant puzzle uh, that, uh, that will be 
a part of our uh, lunar, um, lunar exploration uh, now, not tomorrow, and not 2027, 2030. I mean, these are, those numbers are mixing up technology development with reality. Now we're talking real, real design. So now what would you do? We would fly, of course, um, optical, optical calm is the thing. If you're not doing optical calm, you're not doing space anymore. So uh, we think what we should do is very quickly fly what we call a um, plant and animal lab into orbit. And the way we, and this would remove the specter of radiation that can be, we think, can be a showstopper for interplanetary flight. So how do we do this? We would fly a dragon and an Orion module, dock them together, and uh, conduct experiments first in LEO to certify the system, and then slowly fly it up into geostationary orbit. In geostationary orbit, you will have direct view of your crew and your vehicles and your systems over corners so that you're communicating optically with the system, with the plant and animal lab, which is equipped with a variety of different uh, vertebrates um, that we can study at very quick um, uh, change outs. We can fly up and down using the um, Orion spacecraft and uh, have three or four uh, missions done during the 2023 timeframe uh, to get um, you know, important data. Because when you go up to geostationary orbit, you're kind of beyond the Van Allen belt most of the time. And uh, you can um, uh, see the impact of uh, deep space radiation on animal tissue. Once that is done, we quickly come down, get it fixed up, with more systems. And in 2024, we start what is called the bus craft architecture. And we think the logistics channel between the earth and the moon is far, far, far more important than uh, flying um, gateway into lunar orbit and hoping that things will be fine without having a backup for uh, crew, astronaut safety and rescue. The first established item in our idea of um, chase is to use vehicles that can connect the earth and the moon in a logistic system. So we call that the bus craft. And uh, bus heard about this and came to, came to our finals. And he's very reticent about why, about, about any comments. Anyway, so this is Buscraft. And then over time, we want to make this fully reusable. How do you do that? We know that we have um, uh, propulsion systems uh, that you can take up to LEO and attach to a stack in LEO and then fly them uh, to the moon. It happens to me, my thesis, that Larry watched um, at MIT when we were all getting grilled for, for blasphemy, and it was called the Module Assembly 
in low Earth orbit. It's not new. Space station was built using module assembly in low Earth orbit. So we know how to do this. So we can use all that we have now to fly to the moon. We don't have to wait for SLS. We don't have to wait for, um, for Starship. Uh, we don't have to wait for anybody or anything. We can fly there now. It's all a matter of putting them in line and executing. So we can fly uh, to the moon, land people on the moon yesterday if we wanted to, but there are other policy, um, uh, policy implications, I suppose. And so uh, this is our main project. And uh, for most part, uh, come 2024 or later, we will have better vehicles um, like the, the new blocks of the SLS and so on, which is anti-Diluvian. I mean, you know, if you're not going the way Starship is going, you are living in the 20th century. And uh, let us remind ourselves we are in the 21st. So, uh, so the idea then is to put two people on the moon using the bus craft logistics architecture, bring them back safely to Earth as soon as possible, and then do all the other beautiful things. Over time, the bus craft or a, or a um, variation of it can be a gateway over time. And then all of these works uh, help us to build a real interplanetary uh, transit architecture. So this is what I wanted to share with you. Uh, Artemis Descartes is right now happening. And um, I think we have 20 people signed up. Yesterday I heard that uh, Czech Republic is uh, framing their response. Uh, which would be 21, but it's taken a long, long time. And this is uh, what is happening now. I want all of you, if you've not read this already, the last administration did some fantastic things on um, pushing NASA forward, but they made some mistakes. You know, we are, we are saddled with three programs now. We have, this, we have the space station, uh, we have the Gateway and we have the Artemis. NASA has to wriggle through the whole thing to see how they can make human spaceflight work. They already have trouble with one. Now we are saddled with three. Good luck. So a new error report is important. Take a read and study that. You know, the, the key things that comes through across in these reports and that is there is such a thing as American values. And you probably heard Biden say this to the face of some people there um, uh, yesterday. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people don't agree with this in the world. So we had to wrangle through the system. And you know, at the end of the day, who pays for it? American lodgers. America has to pay for it and hold the lion's burden on all of these things. This is why I like to think, you know, we belong to an interesting, <laughs> interesting part of humanity, and uh, we should cherish that. This is a picture I got yesterday uh, on, if you don't look at space uh, hipsters, take a look at it. This is how the families in the early 60s were being inspired by media. Just looking at me right there. 
sitting and his dad and his mom and his brother, Rick is there, and his wife. This is how we do it at our home. There's no difference. I mean, 1960, 2022, this is what everybody is doing. Finally, I want to conclude by saying the whole world is looking to this week. It is called the International Moon Day. And with that, I want to thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Madhu. This is amazing. Uh, great, great studio, great professor, uh, great proposal. <laughs> and a great philosophy. Did, did, did somebody want to chat or um, am I done? Uh, so as, uh, any question, any question for for professor or you want to chat with professor? Uh, Felipe, if you have any question, many. It's already very late for everybody, I think. Uh, I know, I know it's very late for, it's a long <laughs> program. I, uh, I'm ready and willing to take any questions that uh, may arise. Uh, if there aren't any questions, I, I have some uh, suggestions that I would like to run by uh, uh, Dr. Kuznets, um, but let's see if, uh, if, if there are any questions for any of the speakers. Is that the case? I'm looking at the chat. I don't see, I don't see questions. So does that mean that I can run my idea by Dr. Kuznets? Actually, it's, a, it's an idea of Manny Pimenta, who is also still here, present with us, who is the, the man behind uh, the Virtual Moon Project. Uh, so, Manny, um, could I invite you to unmute yourself and, and you run the idea by, um, by the doctor? I would actually prefer that you do it, Philip. Uh, I'm actually calling in from uh, Indonesia and I have a very poor internet connection. I keep, my, my hotel Wi-Fi keeps dropping out. So, would you, would you mind uh, taking on that task? I, I don't mind at all. Um, so hello, hello, Benny in Indonesia. Doctor Thangavalu, it's a pleasure to see you and hear you again. Um, uh, I, uh, I I enjoyed your presentation very much, also. And you know, anybody who's a, who's in love with the moon is a is a friend of mine instantly. <laughs> Thanks, Benny. So, so the idea, Dr. Kuznets, is that, uh, as you noticed from my presentation, Manny and I were, were crazy space buffs and uh, lifelong uh, enthusiasts about space settlement and space flight, et cetera. So uh, one of the things that we are interested in with our work on virtual reality for space flight is the creation of digital twins. So the, the city that I mentioned, Celine, uh, is actually, uh, we are approaching it uh, as designing a digital twin, which is so engineering accurate that if you were to print out the blueprints and have a company commissioned uh, to build it actually in physical reality and not in virtual reality, it would work. Uh, so it's that accurate for everything, for pressurization, oxygen generation, in situ resource uh, utilization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
so not science fiction, but real in, in that sense. What we would love to explore with you, Doctor, is your interest in creating a digital twin of your Mars suit. Uh, so it basically would walk and talk uh, and move and operate exactly as in reality, but completely in virtual reality. And, uh, and that would enable you to do what if experiments with, you know, uh, how does it operate in this particular Martian environment, uh, interfacing with vehicles, etc. And then if you are uh, open to that, and, and if you would like to explore a collaboration with us on that, uh, we would, after that, we would like to uh, not only look forward to the future as you've invited us to look forward to Mars, but also, uh, capture all of that amazing historic uh, knowledge in your mind yeah. of, the, of the Apollo suits. So we would like to create a virtual reality digital twin of the Apollo spacesuits and also of the Artemis uh, spacesuit and of the suits that have been used on the space station for EVAs because all of those are really different systems and you are Mr. Spacesuit, so who better to, uh, to work with than yourself in creating these engineering accurate, uh, physics uh, accurate simulations of these uh, suits, in particular, your Mars suit. Yeah, sure, uh, but I have to caution you. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not the person who designed the materials, the fabrics, I didn't put them together. I mean, my expertise is, uh, is how they work, uh, not, not so much how they're built, certain parts of how they're built, yeah. But as you can imagine, there are a lot of different components and a lot of different people who put together spacesuits. The, the life support system by itself is uh, extremely complicated, but you know you have to go to Hamilton Standard, which became Hamilton Sunstrand, which became Collins Aerospace, which now has the contract for Artemis. They have all uh, a lot of the records, if, depending on how detailed you wanted to get. Uh, about yes. Appearance is one thing, but when you start to get into uh, how does a PLIS work? I mean, I know the, the rudimentary operations. Of course, I know a lot more about the Mars suit because it's uh, much simpler. And uh, yeah, I know about it. But uh, in principle, sure. So to, to be clear, this is part of the professional aspect of what Manny and I are doing together. So the virtual moon is a, an educational project for everybody. Uh, on any device, but the pro part interfaces with the space industry. And it is in that context that we are also thinking of offering services to the burgeoning uh, space industry, which uh, is on a, in a second, has a second lease on life now uh, with everything that's happening. And, um, and so there, there would be also um, IP that we would be developing together and that we would commercialize to the space industry with your knowledge about how to design spacesuits and how to optimize them, et cetera, so that we can offer to the space industry uh, digital twins of spacesuits that they can then uh, connect to their digital twin of whatever piece of uh, manned spaceflight hardware they are creating. 
So uh, I, I think your, your nodding uh, encourages me to ask you if we could schedule a meeting, uh, offline meeting with you directly to explore this uh, collaboration opportunity. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Wonderful, thank you so much. Sure. Did, did I do that correctly, Manny? <laughs> As always, thank and you. Philip, and Philip, if you, um, you may know, um, that the agency has now handed over the um, uh, spacesuit uh, development uh, to um, a private company. And maybe, maybe Larry knows more. Axiom uh, has is involved now, and of course, um, SpaceX has their own um, spacesuit development effort ongoing. Um, so uh, you are in the ball game. Um, in a very interesting period uh, for uh, the new, um, introducing new technologies. Uh, if you get a chance, if you get a chance, take a look at uh, Nicholas DeMoncho's uh, book called uh, Fashioning Apollo. Um, you know, it integrates, it tells you the ergonomics involved in the design of spacesuits. And it is not all about engineering. It's about styling too. And uh, maybe that'll help as well. But Larry, yeah. do you know, do you know uh, Nicholas? I mean, he's at Berkeley. He, uh, um, he's in the architecture school or, or he, pr he practices in, in, um, uh, uh, in Berkeley. So, okay. Well, I could talk to him, but I, you know, people like that are coming on 50 years after the fact. So uh, <laughs> I would much rather you read, uh, if you haven't already seen it, uh, the Moon Machines series, and then look on the one on the on the Apollo spacesuit. It's, yeah. To me, it's the most informative uh, piece on this that's ever been done. It really tracks the history, the design, the limitations. Uh, so um, if you haven't seen it, that's the go-to video to see. Moon Machines, yeah, I think I, think I know the book too, yeah. It's, uh, no, it's a video. Yep. If, if, if there still is space for that, I wanted to ask a Mars spacesuit question to Dr. Kuznets as well. So one of the big problems in space and EVAs, of course, is the hard radiation problem and uh, that people are exposed to when doing EVAs in space or on the surface of planets that don't have an atmosphere like Earth, which protects us from a lot of radiation. Are there aspects in the Mars suit that are specifically intended to minimize uh, the exposure to hard uh, ionizing radiation by astronauts when doing EVAs on the surface of Mars? Um, I'm, I'm trying to get my phone to stop misbehaving and I'll answer that question. <laughs> it's just really crazy. I've got a phone that just bounces all over the place and it, uh, it calls people that I'm not wanting to call it. The screen is just, I don't know if you can see it, it just, it just goes nuts. It basically is uh, writing its own script, calling people. Of course, now, oh, that, now it's that got I'm a mind of its own. Totally have a mind of its own. It's really, if you look at this, look what it's doing here. Wow. <laughs> I'm not touching anything. It's called some people yeah. I don't even want to call or speak to. It's yeah, that's a good. You're hooked, on, you're hooked on to your AI brain. Uh, that's what's happening, yeah, Larry. Just really and, and, or, vi or virus. 
Ken, uh, am I done? May I uh, take leave of you all? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you wish, you, wish, you all, wish you all a happy International Moon Day. This week is fully Happy, happy. And, uh, happy enjoy. Moon Day. Happy Neos Day. Enjoy, enjoy the rest of your... Before you go, before you go, thank I you, thank make you. a comment about the radiation because uh, this, this has been mashed over so many different ways. Uh, to begin with, uh, the radiation risk, uh, everything, everything for a three years Mars mission has been calculated. And what it does is it, uh, it rules out further space flights. It does not... It, it is an increase in cancer risk of maybe 10%. 10%, yeah. That's what it is. It's nowhere near the number of rads necessary to really injure yeah. or, or be fatal. It's nothing like that. Uh, people tend to just, you want to know what that is or, or get an idea of that, watch, watch a Chernobyl or read Midnight at Chernobyl or look at the, the number of rads that people are exposed to. This is not like that. Uh, but to answer your other question, yeah, there are three companies, one of them is Israeli, one of them is Australia, and there's another one that have mitigation uh, uh, components yeah. that is part of what we are considering for a more spacesuit. STEM, so, STEMRAD is the Israeli company, right, Larry? Uh, right. Yeah, they're doing some very good work on station two. And, uh, you know, uh, I agree with the data that JPL has provided on dosing, and they continue to do that good work right now, both in transit and on the surface. But the question approaches, what do you do um, during an anomalous burst, Larry? Do you have you- talking about, you're, you're talking about an SPE as opposed yeah, to- ours. Yeah, SPEs, SPEs, we know how to handle. We have the same issues in, in, in ISS. We have the issues continually because you get a warning and uh, where you are on, on Mars or even on the moon, you have, I forget what the timing is, but you have enough of a warning from 93 million miles away. I think it's, uh, what, eight minutes, 10 minutes? Uh, sure. You go, you go to a storm shelter, which is very good at stopping the light energy particles of SP, SPEs. Uh, it won't do you any good with GCRs. The main risk yeah. is GCR. So we, we can prepare and shield against SPEs. Uh, GCR, you, you know, basically. But also in GCRs, you, you have a much longer warning period in terms, it's, it's hours rather than minutes. Well, oh, GCR is a constant. They're, they're uh, continuous. There's no time. Yeah. Continuous. They're continuous. But there's a, there, is a, there is a change between, um, between solar max and min because of, uh, uh, because of the, uh, the buildup, yeah. Okay, but, uh, well, that's the other thing. SP, SPEs, uh, we know there's an 11-year cycle. You can plan a mission at the minimum so that you, min you mitigate the risk, and there's always a risk of something toward event. But I don't think SPEs are the issue. The issues are GCR and accumulated dose over time, and that's where this three-year limit and 10% uh, uh, increase in cancer risk comes from. So yeah. outside of these special events, uh, Mars inhabitants will not have to be especially careful in uh, being out on the surface? You don't want to get caught in an SPE if that happens. You, you need right. to be, it's kind of like the talk, the slide I showed about exploration envelope. You need to have the exploration envelope so that you're always within a certain 
time and distance from a safe haven. Haven. So for argument's sake, if 11 minutes is the, is the time of, uh, of an SPE, um, you've got to, you can't depend on mission control at all to detect that because mission control itself is gonna be up to 20 minutes just to get a message to you. So you can't do that. You have to have the detection ability right there. And once you have the detection ability and you have an 11 minute time, you plan just like you plan if you had a uh, failure of a primary life support system and you have only 30 minutes back up at, at five kilometers, you know, or 10 kilometers an hour, just mm -hmm. like that based on how fast the spacesuit can move in that 11 minute period of time, you would, you, and that could be by Rover, which extends no. the distance. So you, the other thing is you can't have twin, you can't have double failures. You, mm -hmm. you won't plan for double failures. You won't plan the rover failing and the primary life support system of your, your spacesuit failing. It's one mm -hmm. or the other. So if the rover fails, now you've got eight hours of life support, but that's not gonna help you if you're more than 11 minutes away with an SPE. See, these are all the, all the factors that go into an exploration envelope. A determination. Now, of course, you could build a shield into the rover, which you might have to do in the case of an SPE. And I think you probably can. I think you can probably shield a, a, a rover from SPE, which mitigates that, that event completely. So there will not be a dosimeter built into Martian spacesuits because uh, people don't have to be careful not to clock up too much time? No, I didn't say that. I didn't say you wouldn't oh. have a dosimeter. There will always be dosimeters. I mean, in all spacesuits, I think, uh, uh, Philip. But the Apollo suits had a passive dosimeter. It's just a, you know. Do, yeah, do, uh, do we know anything at all about scavenging uh, systems? I know that some medications are used um, uh, primarily to, um, uh, to help. Um, uh, if you want to know yeah. about that, read Midnight at Chernobyl. I highly recommend it. Or, watch the HBO series Chernobyl. You want to know everything about oh. that. You're talking about thousands of rads exposure in, in a minute and hospitals that had to treat that and how they treated it and what kind of medication they used and all the yeah. mitigation factors they used. If, if yeah, radiation know. doctors are special. I mean, and uh, they are the ones, you know, my um, uh, co-author on our moon book uh, was director of radiation medicine at Palomar Hospital. So he would tell us how radiation uh, takes your life and um, how not a pretty picture oh my goodness that's terrible that's not a, that's not a uh, that's not a lunar mars kind of analogy i know yeah. uh, dr kuznets have you seen the movie the martian um and have has anybody ever asked you what your thoughts were on the spacesuits uh, as pictured in that movie did, did, were your eyes rolling or were you saying? No, I actually, I actually used that image in, in video as an introduction to talks that I give about uh, Mars spacesuits. Uh, I've done it on cruise ships in front of three, 400 people. I've done it in classrooms. I've done it many times as part of a pitch I give on, uh, on Mars spacesuit development. Very clever, accidental. Uh, treatment of a Mars spacesuit, very clever, uh, but it was completely, uh, so I ask a question, anybody who can tell me what's wrong with this image, 
I will buy a uh, steak dinner for, not a steak, for a vegan, so a vegan dinner for. And uh, I've never heard anybody actually get the, the problem with it, So, uh, which I'll tell you now, so just don't go trying to answer that question and get a free vegan dinner. <laughs> uh, the issue is if you take a look at uh, Matt Damon's spacesuit, it's, it's, um, it does not look like a Michelin man spacesuit. It does not look like a ISS spacesuit, an Artemis spacesuit, an Apollo spacesuit, a shuttle spacesuit. It doesn't look like any of that. It looks like a relatively skin tight spacesuit, not even skin tight, but certainly more fashion and conforming, right? So the implication is that they, the, the producers and the directors, whoever they were, probably had a discussion with spacesuit people. And as you would, if you follow the literature, you would go to the sexiest, the smartest person that you could find who happens to be our good friend, David Newman, who is sitting with her arms folded up in the bio suit looking more or less like the, like a, what's her name from Amazon? Uh, uh, Wonder Woman, almost like Wonder Woman, the way she is sitting there like this and that golden spacesuit. So I believe they use that as the physical cue to design that spacesuit, right? Here's the problem. Matt Damon ends up being stranded and ends up getting punctured, right? By some particle or some spear that he's trying to, all right? And immediately his suit starts telling him he's running out of oxygen. How can it be running out of oxygen when there is no oxygen in that suit? That suit is mechanical counterpressure material. He's not running out of oxygen, but of course it's a great Hollywood, uh, you know, leverage. Mm -hmm. so it yeah. works for the general public and the general public, they're not gonna get into this le level of detail about what's wrong with that picture. It, I was wondering when he was taping up with duct tape the the, the cracks in his uh, visor whether that actually passes muster uh, in real uh, Martian conditions. Philippe is asking difficult questions, Larry. Listen, uh, I like to say this. Uh, you know, we 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 fill our um, car tires to between thirty and thirty five. Uh, pounds per square inch. And uh, cabin pressure is half of that uh, in, a, in a cabin in a spacecraft. It's less than a third. Half, that's right. Half of that, half of that again would be what you would do in a spaceship. And uh, I think we can go down to five, uh, maybe uh, four pounds per square inch when you're doing something. The operating pressure even, is about 4.2 and 4.2 something. And our, our suit is designed to and, pressure. And even in that pressure, it's hard to move around because you're a Michelin man, Michelin man or a Michelin woman. And um, I know that Larry has done some work in that area, partial pressure adjustments and so on. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for Wonder Woman. <laughs> I'm waiting for Wonder Women and Wonder Men with new genetics to tackle this, Larry. What about you? What about you? I, I tell you, Madhu, when it comes to Mars, I am, uh, I am satisfied that we've 
slayed the dragon. Yeah. After, after testing this, I could show you the data for like three days, three plus days, and putting it through the kind of hoops that would cause a problem, namely CO2 migrating into the helmet, yep. cause uh, physical issues. That's not going to happen. We have a patented neck dam that will keep that from happening. Sensors will keep there's a lot of ways. So, and uh, overall, not just for the Mars spacesuit, but any project that you ever work on, at the very top of the list should be KISS. You should never forget KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Mm -hmm. And and if mm -hmm. you don't do that, everything comes back to basics. Stuff that are getting more and more complicated. So, uh, when it comes space to space, is a harsh mistress. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you're, if you're talking about uh, a spacesuit on Mars and you can use the environment, which you can't do on the moon and you can't do in space, you can use the environment. And, um, uh, and uh, uh, Philip, there is a, there is a, a separate school uh, of thought which says that, um, that we should avoid uh, spacesuits completely and uh, have what you call single person spacecraft. And I think when I was in school and when Larry was at MIT, um, you know, Brian Griffin proposed the idea of the single person spacecraft. And uh, if you look at, Brad, if you look at uh, what Brent Sherwood uh, is proposing uh, for the orbital reef program, uh, it reappears there again. Um, the idea of using um, uh, humans in a can. I mean, a small spacecraft uh, that is at cabin pressure with um, peripherals that are robotic uh, that can do all the things for you. And not as, uh, not as, um, um, as complex as uh, the amp, AMP suit and so on that you see exoskeletal suits, but, but those are areas in which um, the US Army is doing some good work too, to relieve the mechanical uh, difficulties of uh, Michelin, uh, Michelin kind of um, uh, situation. So anyhow, that, uh, this is so good, we could talk forever. I'm going to take leave of you. It's a pleasure to meet you, uh, sure all of you. Thank you all, and uh, enjoy uh, the rest of the International Moon Week, guys. See you all. Bye-bye. Bye, Ken. Thanks for hosting. Shukriya, Dr. Tangavelo. <laughs> Thank you. Shukriya. <laughs> Bye, Larry. Good to see you. So... It's just us. <laughs> well, I guess. Well, it's been a long time, so I'm not sure. Ken, are you there? Uh, have you uh, been? Involved? I'm here. I'm wondering. Go ahead. You want to continue the discussion here? here. Uh, well, or you want I to only, call for another meeting? Um, I only had one question left, and I don't know if uh, there's other questions in the chat. I, I was wondering whether. Uh, and to what extent you've been involved in the design of the Artemis uh, spacesuit as well, Dr. Kuznets? Um, well, before I left NASA, I was involved in the, in the uh, bioadvisory algorithm, uh, which I showed during my presentation, a violet, which may or may not be incorporated into, uh, into an Artemis suit. Um, and, uh, and also how you, how you measure consumables, how you, how you generate uh, exploration envelopes, that kind of stuff. Uh, 
team I was working for, which was headed by Mike Gernhardt, uh, NASA astronaut, was the EVA Systems uh, Performance uh, Physiology Group. And they, uh, they worked out all the biomechanics necessary for the Artemis suit. Um, I don't know how much of that is getting plugged into the contractor. Uh, once you issue a uh, once you once you issue a tender, which is gone to act to uh, uh, the Collins and Axio space and planet uh, the other well, the other guys are um, anyway. It all spills down to many contractors, so so they're all working that depending on the terms of the contract, uh, each one has. Uh, a purview over a certain area, like uh, like the CO two removal system, uh, you know, the tank system, the uh, the algorithms, any of that stuff. So yeah, that that's about the extent uh, of it. Great. And, uh, uh, I am um, just so you know, I'm full tilt working on uh, on the next steps, including a NASA grant. Uh, for the most part, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's our team is fully occupied doing that, and uh, there's another part to it. The planetary protection elements of it have been migrated to a uh, what we call a MQ suit, mobile quarantine suit for pandemics that would stop the mm -hmm. next pandemic uh, using a filtration systems similar to the Mars suit that would be lightweight, sterilizable. So we've got we've got our plate uh, full, looking for partners to to get involved in that. Uh, but right now we've just submitted uh, to a to one NASA grant. Expect to hear back shortly whether we get qualified for step two. And there's there's a lot going on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this uh, information from your uh, rich and long career. Uh, so uh, Ken, I, I think we have come to a natural pause or resting point in this uh, in this event um, okay yeah I have a quick comment because this your demo is wonderful but initially when the lander dropped down it's very dark so it's hard for people to see it so if you can put some recommendations so people turn to the right angle. Uh, otherwise, right. people were kind of guessing what they are looking at. Yes, so uh, we are aware of that issue. And actually it's, it's a vexing issue, frankly, Ken, because so remember that we're designing this to be primarily experienced with a virtual reality headset. So we, we, yeah. we start the experience, you're in the virtual reality headset and in the VR headset, you, the audio will immediately be heard. And with, with VR, you can use uh, stereo sound to make people look in the right direction. So people will, will all automatically hear uh, because of how the hearing, human hearing works. You can kind of locate the direction of origin of the sound source. So that will be the first cue. And we're, we're also working on a system, especially for those who are experiencing this lunar landing uh, simulation in VR, um, not on a VR headset, uh, for a system that enables you to move your viewpoint 
on the other side of the lunar module, which is kind of what I did by hand. But basically, you would be able to see the sun illuminated site of the lunar lander during the entire approach and landing. And so basically, you can choose different viewpoints hopping around with the virtual cameras around the lander so that you get around this problem of uh, the, the, indeed, the, it's difficult. Another thing that we thought of is maybe we should have some arrows pointing at where the lunar lander is uh, before it is really yeah. easily distinguishable. So there, there's tons of tricks, but what you saw is work in progress and uh, we haven't uh, polished the user interface there. The, the initial brief from Manny Pimenta uh, present here was, Philip, uh, create me a virtual reality experience that enables me to experience the historic Apollo lunar landing from standing on the lunar surface, just a few steps away from where the, basically the majesty at the end, the, the, the goal is that you have a very majestic view of the lunar lander, Apollo 11 landing in front of your nose. That's the idea. And that's why the initial viewpoint is uh, from that location. If you wait long enough, you will get that majestic thing. But you're right, especially when you don't hear the audio, you know, people, people are wondering like, where am I supposed to look? What, what's happening? And, uh, and that's because of the fact that the lunar lander on Apollo 11 was illuminated uh, uh, by the sun in its back so that the, indeed the astronauts could, could also use the shadow of the lander to help with the, uh, the approach and landing. Yeah, I, I experienced the, the VR. So I see what it mean. And also Dr. Dr. Kastner's uh, show the, uh, the landing video. Uh, that is the experience. Yeah, thank you. That's wonderful. And Dr. Kastner's actually the more, uh, as you mentioned, actually people probably realize your main effort right now is not only on the space suit, but also on the uh, revived space shuttle and also the planetary protection. Uh, you know, it's understandable, you know, uh, you know, the planetary protection of space suit is highly linked, you know, uh, the environment and uh, the service of the planet. So, so I think it's good. People know more about uh, your effort and uh, we, we are more than happy to work with uh, both of you, you know, on more things, uh, space suit can form a mini conference on space suit can form mini conference uh, with the VR in aerospace with uh, Felipe and with Dr. Kastner, whatever you like. So definitely this is uh, very exciting. Let, let me just add uh, one thing that I'd like to say. I'm not very good at hyping my own stuff, but uh, the Save the Space Shuttle effort died in uh, 2012. But the story of it and where it led and how it how it is is uh, relevant right up the moment is extremely important, and all of this is chronicled in the book that I've written, Save the Shuttle, which you can find uh, on Amazon. And in that book, it it not only tracks the the space shuttle from the very beginning, and my experience in being part of the tile team, because uh, I was part of the tile team and that was an unbelievable experience uh, 
and and then later on coming back as uh, as a, a person who was in, in charge of the life human life science experiments that went into the space shuttle, and then writing a, a white paper about it, and then coming back after it had been retired uh, to try to save it because uh, my friend Alan, who's online here, and realized that uh, it was crazy to retire it and then trying to privatize it and then getting so close that uh, that the chairman of the House Space Subcommittee, who I ran into, Jeff Bingham, only a few weeks ago, said that um, basically the, the Space Act of 2010 uh, called for continuing flights of the space shuttle until there was a, an American um, alternative to launch American soil. And that was unacceptable to the uh, politicians who had aerospace workers that were going to get involved in STS. So they had been all for saving the space shuttle until they were told that if you do that, uh, there will you will sacrifice your ability to get money for the STS simply because the space shuttle needed the engines. I'm sorry, the STS needed the engines from the space shuttle to proceed. And so the, the politicians, and by the by the way, it was a bipartisan committee under Jeff Bingham of Republicans and Democrats and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. There was a, a whole lot of people. They were they were basically told. STS needed the engines in the next year or two, so we could not have a space shuttle that we would be ready to test and prove of concept of, of being able to bring in, pay for itself and bring in the money, continue American flights, American soil by 2013. We All we needed was one of the retired space shuttles to do one or two flights in 2013 and Kay Bailey Hutchinson was behind that bill, as was Jeff uh, Bingham, chair of the House Space Subcommittee. And at the end of the day, they were told you either you either forfeit that clause in the Space Act, <clears throat> or you or you're going to lose uh, all this money that's going to go to SLS. And faced with that, they had to make that decision. That's what ultimately killed it. And so. We're talking about 2022, maybe 2023 before SLS flies. And we were asking for one or two flights in 2013. That's how screwed up this is. But aside from all that, the book goes way past that into the setting the stage for uh, Elon Musk and the commercial space industry uh, and reusability and the lessons learned about reusability. And then it gets into Mars. And uh, if you were going to go to Mars, who would best do it and how it would best be done. And it finishes up with all kinds of interesting things like the guy, the single point contact who, who could have made, who could have single-handedly saved the space shuttle in, in spite of all the other stuff that was going on was Bill Gerstenmeier. Now, Bill Gerstenmeier, hilariously, had three jobs at the time this came through. He was responsible. He actually loved the shuttles. He was responsible for, he was in charge of the whole space shuttle program for decades. And then he was also responsible for decommissioning them. He was also responsible for SLS. 
he had all three jobs at the same time. So he had a clear conflict of interest. But cut to the chase, years later, what happens after all this is uh, said and done? NASA fires him. He's not involved with SLS. Where does he go? SpaceX. So, I mean, I mean you can't make up the stuff. You cannot make it up. Uh, anyway, all of it is in the, can, all of it's in this book. And right now, uh, right now we're trying to find a, uh, uh, a director, a film person, an outlet to actually make this book into a documentary. Uh, Alan Boynes is one. Um, uh, so, so, yeah. I want to tell Bill Kuzmeyer Gus, is our honorary fellow. He's here with us. He's our member. He's AIAA honorary fellow. And uh, he gave a talk two years ago with us. We are still in touch with, with, with him. Uh, so that is something. And the other thing, we actually have at least two film producers That's with great. us. So great. we can actually make a connection if you are interested. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's a book film proposal and there's the actual book. The actual book anybody can get online at Amazon, save the shuttle, but the, but the, the most recent iteration of this is a full up book film proposal that's got all of the, uh, the reasons why this is important, why it's important now because of SLS, uh, what, how Ronald Reagan basically crippled the entire American space, not just the space shuttle, but the entire space business by declaring the shuttle can, could not carry commercial payloads. All of that went to Europe, and I said, as I said before, Russia and, uh, and China, uh, all that stuff is in there. Uh, so um, yeah, happy to do it. Happy to talk to anybody and send yeah. any yeah. information. Please send me the link of your book. Sure. I, I will try to uh, it, make a connection. Okay, thank you so much, Ken, appreciate it. And the other thing is, I think that's the last question. You mentioned about pulling one of the uh, remaining space shuttle. Which one you were thinking would be mostly ready if, if you get the money? No, uh, um, none of them are ready. They've been picked apart. They're in museums. Uh, all the active systems have been taken out. So uh, you'd have to build a new one, unfortunately. All right, all right, I understand. A, that was a very tough uh, pill to swallow. Okay, so folks, we have a wonderful program today. And uh, Felipe, Felipe, highly, highly appreciate, highly appreciate. My pleasure, Ken. Yeah, stay in touch. Thanks Very for having important me. work you are doing. Thanks for having me and Manny. And Manny, of course, yes. Stay in touch. Will do. Thank you, okay. thank you everyone. Thank you, Ken. Ad Astra. Ad Astra. Yeah, there you go. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.